Hello, dear listeners. Happy 2019 and welcome to episode two of season two of the Hashtag Pooligans podcast. My name is Daniel and you can follow me on Twitter at D underscore twit. And please also follow the podcast at Pooligans Pod. Today, we celebrate the triumphant return of one of your favorites, investigative reporter, magical quote machine, and all-around genius Bill Myers is back to tell us about his important new series on the opioid epidemic. It's a dense two hours full of interesting insights that you'll undoubtedly enjoy. But before we visit with Bill, I'd be remiss not to mention that President Trump's government shutdown just yesterday became the longest shutdown in modern American history, a situation with ramifications that seem to be growing more and more grim. Democrats have no motivation to give in to the president's demand for wall money, and the president appears happy to keep the shutdown narrative going and feels like, short of an everlasting gold leaf direction, this shutdown makes him look about as manly and decisive as possible. We know he feels this way because he tweets about it incessantly while claiming to be holed up by himself in the White House, arms wide open for any Democrat that might decide to venture within. Alas, there are other things the president has been tweeting about as well. The New York Times and the Washington Post have been dropping major stories this weekend, strongly hinting at the possibility that the Russia conspiracy angle may implicate the president directly. You know, the kind of story that were one said president, one might feel inclined to bury under, hmm, say, a shutdown perhaps? If you're already shaking your head at all this, thank you. That was the desired effect, because we will be leaving much of the most recent Trump administration flailings behind, and instead we will focus on a story that doesn't get the benefit of nonstop attention. It's not a manufacturer crisis, but a real one. So, let's join our dear guest. Let's get into it right after the new 2019 bumper. Here we go. Ladies and gentlemen, it is the first Hashtag Pooligans podcast of 2019, and I have brought you not just any guest, I've brought you one of your absolute favorites. Bill Myers is back for another round of podcasting. He's agreed to do this again. Bill, welcome back. Daniel, thanks for having me. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. And as always, when we do this podcast, I have to tell you, I missed you so much. Oh, darling, you said that to all the girls. It's good to be back. After half an hour of setting this up, um, we've already, we're, we're already past the missing part and have gotten into the, why did I agree to this? Practically fighting in front of the Goyo. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, uh, let's, let's not. Let, let's, let, for now, let's just pretend. Um, keep Bill, the marriage together for the kids. Exactly. Keep the marriage together for the kids. Because the kids, the kids really, really appreciate you, Bill. I want to let you know that. Oh, I appreciate them back. I, I, I don't had think... a really good time last time. I'm looking forward to another round. It's one of the most listened to episodes that we've done. I'll be damned. So unless that was all you, if, it was, if that was all you, then thank you. Uh, but I know <laughs> I that... <laughs> I know that a lot of people really, really appreciated that episode. And in a way... There will be parts today we're talking about your new piece, which we'll get to in a little bit, that <laughs> that um, relate to what we talked about the first time. Good. I look forward to it. But before we get there, before we get to the new piece that I definitely want to talk about, I wanted to ask you, 
with 2018 now finally over during that new year's period if you if you did at all even want to think about 2018 anymore which perhaps you did not but uh. f- for this particular purpose had you been thinking about 2018 as that year finally uh, you know decided to disappear what are your sort of conclusions about 2018 what really stood out most for you and what is it in 2019 that you think will be very similar or dissimilar to uh, how 2018 went? That's a terrific question. I, I hadn't, you know, I, I, I try not to get too hung up on, you know, numinous dates, but um, just, you know, because my mind doesn't sort of work that way. But I mean, it, it feels, um, it feels very much like we've entered into a new phase in the Republic, uh, you know, uh, with, and, and I don't, I don't want to call it the end game, but it feels like we've entered a, a new phase with Trump and Trumpism. And I think 2018 is probably going to be it. I mean, I think we're probably going to remember it as a turning point uh, uh, for the Republic for that reason. Um, I mean, assuming that we all don't get obliterated by some kind of <laughs> nuclear war. Um, or benevolent the, aliens. Uh, but which, I mean, a couple different things happened in 2018. And I think they curtain raise for what you're about to see. The, the first is that, um, I mean, the, you and I talked a little bit about this last time, the, the sort of flickering pulse of civil society in this republic, right? Mm-hmm. It feels like that 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 pulse quickened. Um, and I'm thinking not just in the elections of 2018, uh, the midterms, which I, you know, which were huge, obviously, but um, you, you also saw the Mueller investigation sort of ramp up uh, and, and enter a new phase as well, so that the, the noose is getting tighter around Trump's neck. Um, Manafort went down, you know, formally in 2018. We we had not only, you know, at the same time that, you know, a lot of things were closing down, right? So, you know, Michael Cohen is now pleaded out, um, um, but he's also, at the same time that he's pleading out, he's opening up a whole new avenue of investigation that leads right to the president. So, you know, something like a robust civilist society, or at least the outlines of it, it seems to me, sort of... Um, sort of have t- taken on form in 2018 I-, I i feel and i think for 2019 then i mean if we're if we're going to think about it that way a couple there's a couple different ways to think about it um there are really high expectations now on the democrats and we talked about this i think on our last podcast mm-hmm. now we find out you know whether there's a, a divide between the donors and the voters of the Democratic Party and the Democratic Party themselves are going to have to, you know, they're going to have to make a decision uh, very quickly um, on, a, on a number of important things. And, you know, each little sort of micro decision will go towards a macro one. But I think the other thing is, and I don't want to give any credit or credence to the rhetoric of, of the president, but, you know, all that talk of the deep state, what you're about to see, it seems to me, coming around Washington is is something like the deep, what, what the deep state has been thinking for a while, right? So, I mean, the thing that's been really astounding about all the Trump scandals, as far as I can see, and, and look, and I don't claim any inside knowledge, I've just got the worm's eye view of this, right? But, I mean, the thing that's been really staggering about all these Trump scandals is that the leaking, such as it is, has come from the inner circle, like the inner sanctum of Trumpdom, right? Mm-hmm. And there's only been a couple of cases where you know, something like the the bureaucracy itself looked like it was avenging itself on official. I'm thinking of like Ryan Zinke, the Secretary of the Interior, and some of the stuff that we learned about Scott Pruitt, 
right? That that felt like the bureaucracy exacting its terrible vengeance on a on a on a bad on a bad administrator that had offended their sensibilities. Now, though, that the Democrats have subpoena power, um, not only can they go directly at the president, but every one of those bureaucracies have, have and they've probably been signaling this for for you know for all two years of the, of the Trump administration. Um, through you know, and, and every government agency has its own liaison with Congress, right? I and mean, that's an official position. Um, I would be willing to bet that they have, they have been signaling like crazy. You know, whatever you do, don't ask us about X, or whatever you do, don't you know, don't don't ask for records related to Y, right? <laughs> well, now that the Democrats have have those gavels, we're going to find like th- this is where we're going to start seeing. Um, I mean, at the same time that the, you know, that the sort of the, the Trump track is going at, you know, at one layer of this, right, that, that I, where I expect all the leaks and the, and the chaos at the top level, we're also going to start getting the, the, the nuts and bolts and the, you know, where the rubber meets the road kind of stuff. And I'm running out of cliches to describe it. <laughs> but, 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 you know, we, we've been getting sort of the top down view of all the scandals because of, you know, the chaos around Trump's immediate entourage. Now we're going to get the bottom up view, right? That you know what, what's actually been happening in, say, the Department of Justice uh, at the lower levels, and what's actually been happening uh, in EPA, and that's maybe not an EPA because it feels like we've ventilated that. But you know, you know, look for stuff like in HUD, for instance, and the Department of Education. I think what's interesting, what I think what's interesting about what you're saying, though, HUD, I agree with you, was sort of ventilated. I don't you think it will be much harder though to ventilate. Uh, the DOJ, because I th- I don't think we'll find out anything about Whitaker, and because they'll they'll try to supplant him with Barr before we ever get there, and then they'll they'll sort of tell us that that was not that's no longer really necessary. And Barr though seems to be in a situation where the Senate the Republicans have enough votes in the Senate to push him through, but considering that that little uh, that, what was that like five or six pages that he submitted a creed about how Mueller, the Mueller investigation was, was probably overstepping its bounds. Yeah. I think that what that is, that, that is as much anti-ventilation as we're going to get in any department. Uh, I think DOJ is going to be tough. It, you could, you could well be right. I mean, I, you, um, the, the, the thing that I'm keeping my eye on is, um, I don't know if we talked about this last time. A lot of people watch C-SPAN and they, um, and because they see sort of new Kingrich, thundering away at the at the at the dais <laughs> yep. they assume that like that the way washington works is you come in and you thunder at people right and like um and the truth is like it's it, as much as this can often be sort of a vatican for sociopaths it's also a vatican for autistics right like um it's full of sort of very smart people um like you know like the dc area has the highest concentration of advanced degrees on planet earth right like if like the you know the only the only place that comes closer is like you know suburbs of boston around cambridge right um but you know per capita there's just a ton of like masters and phds and advanced degrees and jds and stuff so you have all these sort of very very well educated very smart people and you know they they tend liberal in their politics right i mean for reasons we can get into later but um they don't you know they're nonpartisan in, in the sense that like they sort of take professional pride in executing their jobs as civil servants, the difficulty that people have when they 
especially anybody who tells you that they're going to come take Washington by storm. Like you just set your clock, right? The bureaucracy will do whatever you ask them to do, right? They're, they're nonpartisan in that way. They don't, you know, so like think, think about the way, for instance, every time the FCC changes hands, they, they go, they toggle back and forth on net neutrality. Mm-hmm. It's basically the same bureaucrats pulling, doing the heavy lifting on all this. Um, so they're not changing. But the only thing that they ask of you is that, is that you follow and respect the process. And when you don't do that, uh, they have ways of exacting their vengeance upon you, right? So, um, again, I mean, I'm not – I have no inside information on this, but I, DOJ is a place – a likely place to start hearing all sorts of disturbing stuff. For instance, not just about Whitaker or Barr – but about Jeff Sessions from back in the day. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, you've, you, you've had two years where you've had no oversight of any of the agencies, right? And not even like no oversight in the sense that like, I mean, you know, like the, when the Republicans controlled Congress under W. Bush, they weren't very eager to get to the bottom of stuff. But Chuck Grassley would still send out threatening letters every now and again. And when stuff reached the point, you know, where, you know, senators were getting offended enough, you, know, you did have something like meaningful oversight. There were, there were sort of boundaries set on this. The last two years of the Trump administration have just simply not been that way. I mean, they, they have had, they've been left absolutely alone. And it's been, you know, like the Congress has been sort of like the, the proverbial monkeys that, he, you know, he see no evil, hear no evil, speak mm-hmm. no evil. Um, and so, you know, now that there, now that a different party is, um, has the gavels in one of the houses, um, you're going to start hearing stuff about expense reports of you know different political appointees, and you're going to start like, and and what I'm getting at overall is, um, if you think you're tired of Trump now, just fucking wait, right? Because, um, like you, you haven't seen you ain't seen nothing yet. You um, mean the, the good stuff is about to start raining down? Yeah, I mean, you know, the, I mean, well, we just, I mean, you, I, I think you know, just today, <laughs> Manafort's lawyers forgot to redact; oh God, they didn't yeah. properly redact <laughs> uh, one of their filings, and so you know, they're, they're basically acknowledging that Mueller's looking at the possibility that Manafort was sharing polling data with a Russian agent, which sounds a little bit like conspiracy, which is, I guess. <laughs> What, what what otherwise would be known as collusion in the in the president's yeah. terminology, but yeah, that there's there's that that would be that could qualify as conspiracy right there. And the Russian lawyer whose name escapes me, she was in the Trump oh, Tower yeah. meeting. She got indicted today for obstruction in a supposedly unrelated money laundering case. Right, so, so a huge money laundering case. That's like a, a way. What was it, like three hundred fifty million or something like that. Well, yeah, and it was. I mean, and the thing about it was, the the case itself. Um, you know, it's it's pretty bald the way we're, uh, the, the allegations are that the you know that this Cyprus there's a Russian company, there's a Cyprus front company, and Cyprus is notorious as a as a money laundering capital. Cyprus and Luxembourg, mm. among others, and you know, they were they were stealing the identities of other companies, and then filing suit, uh, basically against themselves to, with all these dummy companies, so they could write off the tax losses. The, the thing that, that's really striking about, about that, that the, and I, I'm sorry, I can't remember the woman's name, the, uh, the, the lawyer who's uh, indicted yeah, yeah. today. But the, I mean, the thing to keep your eye about that is, even though it's not directly related to Trump or it doesn't seem to be yet, Trump in some way sort of, I mean, there's a sense among developers that Trump has invited the vampire into the house and now they can't get rid of it. 
And we're going to find out, I think, in very short order. I mean, if, if this kind of thing keeps up, we're going to find out in very short order just how much of America's, for instance, real estate market and probably London's and all sorts of other places, you know, Miami, New York, San Francisco, how much of it is propped up through money laundering, through these uh, scumbag oligarchs. Uh, you, we did we did talk about this last time you mentioned yeah. that. Yeah, that's part of that story. But here's your data point for it, right? I mm -hmm. mean, that 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 you know, here's this woman that you know at the same time she was working the Russian. I mean, she was apparently well. I'm going to say it. I mean, she was acting as a Russian agent for their for their fellow agent Donald Trump. At the same time, she's taking those meetings. You know, she's also running interference on you know, money laundering for the oligarchs, and now she's pinched. You know, even if she stays strong on it and doesn't give anything up. You know, there are there are all sorts of doors now that have been kicked open that if the feds want to walk through there, they, you know, it's it's the proverbial thread in the sweater that's now been tugged. Right? And the question is how far this is going to unravel. You know what I'm curious about is if this was Cyprus, I'm wondering whether the Bank of Cyprus had any involvement because I seem to remember that a, a certain Mr. Wilbur Ross was, uh -huh. was on the board. Odd that, isn't it? Of the Bank of Cyprus. That seems yes, to... he was. Mm. Uh, odd. What? What an odd. What an odd coincidence. It's all these coincidences. Yeah. Of course, Wilbur Ross. Of course, always very straightforward about his finances. So no possibility <laughs> that he could have done anything that would have possibly aided or abetted anybody in not being completely forthright about their financial situation. This whole thing—it's like the March Brothers, but sad. I mean, just <laughs> you know, yeah. like like this. <laughs> If it was a Chaplin movie, it would be sad times. Yeah, it was. Yeah, really. I mean, it's just like you know, like it's all these sort of hijinks and and tomfooleries, but it's just not fucking funny. Mm -hmm. um, dopes and robbers. Yeah, it's just. Oh well. So we drink. How are you? <laughs> I'm I'm good, thank you. I'm I'm having a splendid time. I knew I was going to have a splendid time if I if Bill agreed to come back to the podcast, and that is exactly what has occurred. I think 2018 for a lot of people. If you listen to some of the other episodes of this podcast, for a lot of people, <clears throat> 2018 was a fright of a year. Uh, fre uh -huh. Frequently hair on fire. But what I heard in your in your summary of 2018 and 2019 going forward is that the, I think divided government, even though there are aspects of it that are that are not workable as far as legislating is concerned, at least there is oversight. And 2018 sure felt like it needed more oversight yeah well no and look i mean the, the truth is i mean like i mean there's two ways you can it seems to me you can evaluate this right you can just sort of take like the surface level cynicism of like the traditional like party warfare but the the truth is you know th there's a great many people if, if not a majority of americans uh, you know I, I don't know what the numbers are but you know you you can't even if you even if you wanted to, like I don't think anybody would appreciate it if the Democrats were to work out some kind of deal on, say, infrastructure with Donald Trump. Um, you know, the guy is the guy is a kleptocrat, and he is. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's in the Roman sense, he's an enemy of the public, right? I mean, um, so in in many respects, you you know the the you know the damage is already done to the republic, right? I mean, like. We're, we're, David Frum's line is, you know, we're, we're not coming out of this intact. But the the thing about the midterm elections, the thing about the ongoing Mueller investigation, which has survived this far, the the thing about, you know, what you're seeing, in, you know, in the outlines of civil society with people sort of being engaged and 
Um, I mean, just I mean, just the sort of the giant shrug that so many of our countrymen greeted tonight's address with. Right. I mean, like uh, tonight's address with um, the there's I, I, you know, I could be wrong about this, but I, I just get the sense that sort of people understand, you know, they have a they, they have an they have an understanding that, that that the republic itself is at stake here and they're taking their, their civic responsibilities seriously. And, you know, we may not win. I mean, like, you know, that sometimes the bad guys win, mm-hmm. but at least now, like the battle lines are drawn um, and there's something like, you know, if not a, a level playing field, then there's, you know, the, it feels very, it feels, I mean, it, frankly, it feels to me like that the, you know, that Donald Trump is now on borrowed time. Um, I, you know, and I, I've been wrong about him for years. So, you know, take that for whatever it's worth. But um, what I'm wondering is, even if, like, let's say for some reason that recently we had we had uh, Mitt Romney rejoin the political fray. Yeah. Right, and he's now he's now in the Senate, senating about. And he gave a high-minded, he, he wrote a high-minded little speech about, or a high-minded little piece, I guess, for the, for the Washington Post, about what his appreciation of, of uh, the president is at the moment. And it was not flattering, mm. and, and it, it was acknowledged by the president as not being particularly flattering. He wished he was more of a team player. But it felt to me like, if, if you look at it as the bad guys and the good guys, and, and really as Trump as a kleptocrat, the thing is that for the GOP, there's no, there's nothing behind Romney. So it's not like the GOP now has a choice between let's let's listen to our better angels, perhaps, and and mm-hmm. and get back to something that we had before, and listen to Romney, uh, and maybe perhaps we'll just slowly back away from this Trump situation because this shit is getting a little bit scary. That's not what's happening, right? Because they've got nowhere well, to go. He still seems to be a solitary voice compared to the rest of the GOP, which has been getting more Trumpy. Yeah, no, that that's true. But I, I think a couple different things. I mean, that was bound to happen anyway. I mean, Trump had already conquered the Republican Party, right? I mean, mm-hmm. um, the real question was whether he was going to conquer the rest of the Republic, right? And so the midterms gave us our answer there, right? Mm-hmm. That's true. Um, so he, he hasn't, you know, he, he has, he controls one party and that's not nothing, right? I mean, that ain't beanbag, as they say, right? Mm-hmm. Especially in a two-party country. That's it. I mean, that, you know, that, I mean, that, that's the crisis right there. But what, what, uh, I mean, the thing about Mitt Romney is he's, a, he's opening up space right now. He's opening up space right now and he's doing it in advance so that conservatives of goodwill have uh, an alternate sort of source, right? I mean, the, the, the president right now has been sort of the sole source of, of patronage in the party. Um, Romney's opening up a, a very slight gap. The the other thing is, you, you'll notice we've already had two Republican senators announce their retirements uh, mm-hmm. ahead of 2020, right? Mm-hmm. Now, that may well be because they've had enough, right? And like they, they're looking forward to their golf game. But it's just odd. I mean, it, it's it's signs that the Republican Party understands that they are they are not popular with the broader country. You know, the, they're right now they're in a prisoner's dilemma, right? Trump Trump's got them in the prisoner's dilemma. You can you can have your judges, you can have your conservative legislation. Mm-hmm. I get my corruption, right? That that's the bargain that they that that, that Trump has has worked out with them. Um, what 
what became clear, at least in the in the last in the in the midterm elections, was that there's going to be a there's there's a political cost to that, right? That you know that it may well be the end of your of your public life uh, if you if you continue to uphold that side of the bargain, right? So, um, just to, like to Arizona, right? McSally loses to to uh, a bisexual atheist congresswoman in Arizona, and now Arizona's delegation is majority Democrat, mm-hmm. right? Even though McSally ended up making it in herself, I guess. Well, that's okay, but that's what I'm going to go at. It, mm-hmm. Is next that. Um, you know, she did her damnedest to try to she wasn't very Trumpy at the outset, but she did her damnedest to try to comply with him. Mm-hmm. Right. And it cost her the election so that, you know, she's got she's got to go defend that seat in two more years with, you know, a local with, you know, with with local Democrats absolutely chewing glass and breathing fire and ready to go. And a national party that's now eyeing her state, you know, eyeing her state the way you know, the way I look at ribeyes and, you know, right. I mean, <laughs> so, so my, my, my point is that like, you know, that people like her who are, um, even if they're sort of ultimately conservative, they're not, they're not Trump conservative. I mean, they're, they are facing sort of dark nights of the soul in front of them. And the other thing is this, now that the Democrats have this, have the subpoena power in the house, and now that the bureaucracy has somewhere to go, um, to sort of vent their spleen about what they're saying, which, by the way, would happen in any administration, right? I mean, like there were whistleblower, you know, mm-hmm. there were whistleblowers in the Obama administration. Like the bureaucracy just has ways of letting you know what what they think of you. Um, you know, the, the the scale of this outfit and the just the sheer flabbergasted incompetence, I think, are like we haven't. I, I don't like we just we just haven't really gotten our arms around it yet. But but what I'm getting at is we're going to this year, it is likely this year, we're going to learn what's in Trump's tax returns. We're going to learn, I mean, we're going to learn whatever we learn from the Mueller investigation, but we're going to learn all sorts of things about weird ass business deals in India and China and Syria um, with, and, you know, and Jared and Ivanka, we're going to find out all these things through house investigators. Right. <clears throat> and the Republican party, the leaders of the Republican party are already tired of answering questions about Trump's dumbass tweets. Just wait until like, you know, and, you know, and it's, it's easy to sort of laugh it off now because it, you know, it all feels like pro wrestling and we, we can get into some of that, by the way, because I think that's, mm-hmm. it's that's a very, good that's point. actually by, well, it's, it's by design, right? I mean, that, that, that's how, that's how Putin did it. But, but what I want to say for now is that if the, if Republican leaders are tired right now of answering questions about those goddamn tweets, what are they going to say when, when you find out that that you know he, the guy's been cheating on his taxes for years, well, I don't know what they're going to say. I know what his base is going to say. His base is going to yawn, say that's we we knew who he was when he came here, so we already knew that. Doesn't change our mind, and carry on. No, right. But I mean, you you don't lose elections by losing your your base. You lose elections by losing swing voters, right? Mm-hmm. And and those definitely seem to be on the move. Yeah. No. Absolutely. I mean, the, I mean, like the here's the other thing i mean like we, the weirdness of it we talked about this last time the weirdness of the american political system right which you know we find out in in weird moments that our our our, our founding fathers and trying to protect us from the tyranny of the um, majority they 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 inadvertently left us vulnerable to the tyranny of the minority and you know there are sort of structural impediments to you know something like absolute you know true democratic rule to you know keep the people from picking their leaders 
But the fact is the midterm elections were historic wipeouts, mm-hmm. right? I mean, the, the, you know, this was sort of, you know, like New Deal era stuff and post Watergate era stuff. You know, you know, whether or not that Trump's base wants to wants to back him up, you know, the, every Republican senator, every Republican senator is is facing, you know, again, a long winter of discontent because they're hostage not only to every next tweet, you know, they've, they've, they've been hot. They've, they've already submitted as hostages to every next tweet that Trump puts out. They're they're now hostage to every next substantive revelation that the House Democrats or the Mueller report, Mueller investigation, or investigative reporters can come up with, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, just just to take one sort of seemingly innocuous example, the New York Times went over the Trump empire's uh, property tax breaks, right? It took them better part of a year, more than a year to do it. But at the culmination of their investigation, they openly accused him of fraud. They used the word fraud, and they used it multiple times in their investigation. You don't do that, um, especially in a newspaper like the New York Times, unless you are, I mean, like the, 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 like the lawyering that would have been involved in using that word even once, let alone as many times as they did. And, you know, and meanwhile, you know, he's you know, trying to manufacture a crisis at the border. And <clears throat> it seems to me that his instincts, right, which have served him really well. I mean, let's let's be real for a second. Whatever else you think about him, the guy had an unbelievable amount of cunning and has gotten farther than, you know, than certainly I would have given him credit for. I mean, I, I thought this was self-evidently silly when he first started talking about it in 2000. You know, his cunning, his usual sense of cunning, I think in this case has betrayed him. And I think, you know, he he came on the air tonight because, you know, I think in his own mind, he thinks that he he can close the deal with the American public. He thinks that he's beloved and he's confusing his rallies for actual support. And the truth is, you know, I I don't know where the numbers break down, but something like two thirds of the country or, or three fifths of the country not only disagree with him, they despise him actively. And I, and I think he's and I don't think he's and he's not going to be able to learn that. I don't think he'll be able to, to, to come to grips with that. But every other Republican official in the Republic understands that, you know, so it's you know, so right now, yes, I mean, it looks like, you know, everything's rock solid in the Senate. You know, he's got he's got some protection. He's got his base. But, you know, Hemingway's line about how rich men get poor, right, two ways, gradually and then all at once. What was striking, I thought, about tonight's presentation, because you're talking about his cunning failing him, is that tonight's presentation seemed to be twofold. There was a first part that was clearly written by Stephen Miller, who I'm sure, <laughs> as as Rick Wilson just put it on Twitter, was off camera fapping wildly. <laughs> um, and yeah, I mean, even Josh Dawsey of the Washington Post said it's a Stephen Miller special, but no huge news. There was a Stephen Miller part to it, which... I think by some accounts worked better. And then came the Trump part. And the Trump part, when he does these things, the Trump part was the aggrieved part. He mm-hmm. he went back to the Obamas having walls around their house, even though he didn't say their name this time. But that's who he, everybody remembers, I think, that tweet of how the Obamas have, have, have supposedly walls around their house in, in D.C., which they do not, by the way. But nonetheless... And he he mentioned how the Democrats had been for a wall, but now they're not. And and he gets into this aggrieved tone, 
which seems in some ways counter to what he does when he does his rallies where he's really in his element and he really uses that instinct to read mm-hmm. the people before him and and I think you're you're totally right that is a, a unique gift that he has but it seems that then when he in this moment where he's meant to be presidential and and he uses really one of the one of the rarest tools in the presidential tool set mm-hmm. Then it fails him and his instincts seem to fail him completely under those circumstances. And he seems to have wilted. Not not only that, but like within the last hour, Lisa Murkowski, the Republican senator from Alaska, mm-hmm. called, for an, called for an end to the government shutdown. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, he's losing <clears> so, yeah, yeah, I mean, so the well, I mean, you know, so think about that. I mean, you know, so the I think your I think your point is astute that that but, you know, in, in many ways, this is just. I mean, it's perfectly banal. Like, I mean, the Greeks discovered this a long time ago, right? That, like, there's a cure for hubris and it's nemesis. And this is what it looks like, right? Mm -hmm. And um, the guy has, you know, the guy has been sort of punching above his weight for a long time, right? He's, you know, borrowed time, borrowed money, borrowed prestige. Literally, yeah. Yeah. And suddenly the bills are coming due all at once, right? And, you know, in the... You know, I'm looking forward to the day when I can look for when I, when I can look back on this and 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 almost feel bad for him, right? Because, you know, in the final analysis, he's he's probably a, a pathetic figure. Um, but the truth is, um, this guy sh- like he, he, like it would have been better for him if he had just lost that election. I think even I, I think even he might, some parts of him I think even probably feel that way. Yeah, I mean, uh, but you know, he because he could you know because you know if you recall people forget this he had a deal in place to go have his own Trump TV station, right? He was going to go to his own cable network, you know, where he and his, you know, they, he and his Nazi friends could do their LARPing. Um, <laughs> and. Oh, I feel so bad for LARPers. Sorry, LARPers. <laughs> but like, I, but the, you know, but the, the thing is he, you know, the, he would have like, he would not have been, he called down the thunder. Right. I mean, this is, I mean, it's straight, it's straight from the Greek textbook, right? That mm-hmm. like, that you know, he he flew clo- too close to the sun, and now, you know, and now that you know, there's just sort of refrigerators dropping all over the place. I'm right in the middle of reading Timothy Snyder's book, The Road to Freedom, uh-huh. and I urge it upon your readers, I mean, your listeners, um, and and you. Uh, it's really terrific. I, Timothy Snyder, I think, is a terrific historian. Anyway, he, he's a historian of, this, of the Holocaust. Um, but one of the points that that he makes in the in the Road to Freedom is that Trump is a projection of Russian foreign policy, right? A Russian, frankly, it's Russian domestic policy. Uh, that you know, Vladimir Putin, when he decided to to take the Russian presidency back in 2012. Um, he didn't have an answer to the protests that met him. And so, you know, what he did was he projected outward and his, he was working on it. He was sort of flirting around the edges of it beforehand, but he, he threw himself into the project in earnest of destabilizing first the European Union and then ultimately the Americans. And one of the things about the road to freedom, you know, Snyder was on the ground in Ukraine uh, and Russia in 2012 and 2014. And he watched all of these things happen, <clears throat> excuse me, all these Russian um, cyber attacks 
happened first in Ukraine, then in Europe, and then eventually rolled out to the United States. You know, the thing that he noticed was, you know, that 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 one of Putin's sort of, for lack of a better word, one of his tricks is to keep people in a constant state of agitation, right? This constant sense of crisis and chaos. Um, Putin himself was was literally brought to power by a manufactured crisis with the Chechen rebel, you know, where you know some bombs went off in St. Petersburg and in Moscow. And Putin was this obscure bureaucrat in Yeltsin's government who was bodied forth to sort of protect Mother Russia from the Chechens. But, you know, who else does this remind you of, right, with a constant chaos and a constant agitas, right, and the, and the constant sense of crisis and siege, mm. right? And the, you know, and I guess, and you know, this is the part of the reason I feel as optimistic as I do is, and I, again, I don't have any polling data and I, I live on the deck in an East Coast and so I may well be in my bubble. But um, the impression I get is that even leading up to tonight's address from the president, very few Americans bought it. I mean, just, most Americans hung a big not interested sign on it because they understand now, even if they don't understand it, in the you know in the sort of global sense that you know that you know the, 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 how it connects back to Russia and everything else, they 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 understand that this is sort of you know this is how the sleight of hand works, mm-hmm. right? That you know and and you know and you know the, the, from what I can see you know in the Twitter traffic and you know and as much as I have an index on it, most people are sort of like yeah now nah, I'm good, <laughs> right? I don't think I think once the the Nielsen data comes out for how many people actually watch tonight's address, I think you're what you're saying right now will most likely be borne out. I think it was. And for people who saw it, it was really it was seven or eight minutes long. There was no news in there. There was there was nothing in there that anybody needed to see. And so I think people's instincts were were on point. I think there was part of the drama was is he or is he not going to declare a state of emergency tonight? And I think most of the network news and most of the most of the credible reporters had had come to the conclusion that that was not going to happen tonight. So once that was off the table, I think you're absolutely right. There was very little left other than most likely the same thing that most people had already heard. And I think people will have stayed away, as you said. I, I think you're right. I, but I'll take it a step further. Question is why didn't he declare the state of emergency? And why didn't he? Yeah, and so for me, one possible answer I think that's the most intriguing is it may well be that you know the Republican the Republican leadership signaled to him in some way that it wasn't going to fly, mm. right? <clears throat> and so that's why I say that like you know it, as much as it can be infuriating to watch. You know, like a, a senator say that he's had enough of Trump stuff, and then you know, vote for every one of his judges. Um, <clears throat> in some ways, that's an unfair standard, right? Because you know, you, you know, you you can't you can't kind of be a conservative, right? I mean, like the what, what I'm getting at is that <clears throat> that that you know, the thing the worm has turned now, or it feels that, or the worm is turning. And and I, I I just I get the distinct impression that um, he's on shakier ground even amongst his own party than he was in 2017. Yeah, 
That, I think that's a, a very fair assessment. Yep. And I think with that, we're now going to leave the president behind and his manufactured crisis and focus <laughs> on an actual crisis. And this actual crisis is something that we spoke to Bill about last time he was on because he had a terrific piece already then about an opioid company that makes both the opioid and the cure for the opioid. Tonight, I really wanted to talk to you about your new series, which right now is up on thewellnews.com. The piece is called The Town That Raised Reagan Wants Out of the War on Drugs. And if you think that that is a long title, it is also a very long piece. It's a very detailed piece. And I had a chance to read it a little while back, not in sections, but the whole thing. And it is it is devastating, and it's extensive, and it's full of really incredible details, the kinds of details that Bill always puts in his work. I really cannot encourage you enough. Read the whole thing. It, it frequently is so mind-blowing that you just have to sort of sit there for a moment and and understand that while we are talking about a clearly manufactured crisis that for some reason the president felt needed the entirety of the United States to watch him on television explaining once more, there is another actual crisis going on that takes lives every single day. First of all, I want to congratulate you on a really, really amazing piece. Thank you so much, Daniel. And I appreciate and I'm, I appreciate you taking a look at it, by the way. You're, you were a big help in the editing how did this how did this piece first come to you and what is it that made you choose this as a piece that you you clearly dedicated a lot of your a lot of your time and effort to well thank you for being really so handsome about it um i'm proud of it i grew up uh, in a town called sterling illinois um, a r rural bleak steel town in northwest illinois about two hours west of chicago so and the town 10 miles down the road from me was, was a place called Dixon, which is where Reagan grew up. Um, so this is basically me going home again. Um, and, you know, I had, I had, my, my, my folks are, uh, were both, um, they, they're family therapists. My folks were, um, and they had just sort of casually talked for years about, you know, that they were noticing things were, you know, things were getting really dodgy with the opioid crisis. And um, I heard that the cops in Dixon, it started in Dixon, but it's it spread to like a hundred different cities in Illinois now, and it's spreading all around the country. Um, the cops have basically surrendered. They, they've stopped arresting people for, for drugs and, and they're, they're getting people help. And so they've launched this program called Safe Passage, where if you have a problem or you think you do, you can come check in at the, at the police department. You can bring your drugs, no questions asked. They'll, they'll trash them for you. And the cops will help you fill out the intake forms and they'll get you a ride to rehab, which, um, you know, and they've, they've got close to 300 people through rehab in the last three years since they, since they launched safe passage. Um, and, the, you know, the the thing is that the opioid crisis has now moved into big cities, right? It's now, it used to be a white rural problem, and now it's a national problem. Um, and the, you know, increasingly the face of the opioid crisis is becoming black and big city. Um, but the in small towns like Dixon, like the opioids have gone through there like a tornado, right? And um, 
it's not just the deaths. I mean, the deaths are awful and staggering, but it's, you know, the absenteeism, the foster, the kids in foster care, the, um, you know, like you can just see, like, you know, just when I was driving around um, in the town I grew up in to do the reporting on this, this was last spring. Um, like, you, you know, you can just look at some people and see like their skin is sallow and you know, they're not going to make it. So um, we're, we're losing something like 115 people a day to opioid overdoses. Um, and more Americans died of overdoses last year than died in all of the Vietnam War. Um, so it's lost generation stuff, right? I mean, this is, you know, the, it's turning, I mean, it's, it's re-blighting the cities, right? But it's also turning uh, small towns into ghost towns. I mean, literally and figuratively. I mean, just they're just gone. And um, uh, we haven't published it yet, but one of the in one of the parts of the story, um, the you know, I, I talked to a dad who's already buried two of his daughters in separate overdoses. Um, and it, you know, and there's sort of a pregnant pause in our conversation here, talking by phone. I'm outside. I'm in a car outside my folks' house. And uh, he's like, well, of course, I'm on opioids myself. I'm on Demerol. I'm on Vicodin. Um, and it's just, you know, I, like uh, you know, the realization that's like, Jesus, you know, we're going to have to come out of here and do this again for you. Mm. Um, so, you know, the, the, this is just sort of my attempt to take the, you know, the well news is a startup, uh, website is a former congressional staffer and I appreciate them willing to take a risk on a, on a big series like this, especially right out the gate. Um, but it's just, you know, it's sort of an effort to take a look at, you know, something that, I mean, I suspect is like, I suspect, you know, when I say lost generation, I, I, I'm not just being sort of hyperbolic. I mean, I think, it's going to sort of be the common experience of a, of a rising generation that like, you know, the, the opioids are going to be like, you know, the soldiers in Jane Austen novels. It's just sort of the background of the early 21st century. And if we're not careful, it may be the, the entire story of it. It's, it's so devastating. I think I, I remember when you, when you sent me the link, I was so excited that, that the story had been published and I posted it in our little, in our little, uh, group dm and the group dm consists of of a sample of 23 people and of the 23 people one immediately said i and i told you i think at the time she her immediate reaction was that is so devastating because i i'm glad that he's writing this story because she said i lost my mom to opioids and my brother is a heroin addict jesus christ and that's that was a a sample of twenty three people, and out of the twenty three, it was one uh, who right. was in in that situation. So it, it's such a it's such a large scale and and devastating problem. I'm I'm curious, what kind of efforts did you have to go to in order to make this story happen? How long did this actually take to report to research the the reporting itself was probably, you know, good two, three weeks, including going out to, to Western Illinois. 
people were fairly open and decent about it. They're not, I mean, in small towns, they're not used to talking to reporters about stuff like this. Mm-hmm. So in one way they were, you know, they were pretty open in another way that, you know, what I kept running into was this sort of conspiracy of silence that happens in small towns where um, as judgy as people can be in a place like that, they don't want to talk about it in front of outsiders. Right. So, you know, you say things like, you know, one of the people, and I think you know this, I'm not, one of the people I, I profile is that is a doctor who is probably the most responsible for the crisis out there. Yeah, we're, we're definitely going to get to that guy for sure. Yeah, Dr. Zero, you know, every everybody knew about him, you know, and people were willing to say, yeah, you know, it was a big problem, but they were talking about him in the past tense, you know, because he, you know, he had already been sentenced to jail. And the, tr- the truth is, you know, he got, he, he may not have hooked every, and, you know, a lot of, lots of addicts were coming to him, but um, I mean, you know, thousands of people went to his pain clinic in Sterling and, you know, at least three of his patients, at least three of his patients OD'd and died. So, you know, it, it, it was, it was sort of a challenge to get people to sort of open up and, you know, and say, you know, like, well, I'll give you one example. It, it's not in the story. I was trying to find a place where I could go find a dealer. You know, I, I thought that that was sort of the missing piece of the of the series. Like, you know, what, what's it like to be on the other side of all this? And I had just the damnedest time to get people to, to open up and say, um, well, you know, you need to go here or ask mm-hmm. for this guy. I'm nervous you're a narc, basically. Yeah. I mean, it was, you know, and it like, but even like social workers and cops were, were like, mm-hmm. you know, and the, and the truth is, you know, they, it's not like they have open air markets, right? Like... <laughs> Um, well, no, I mean, you know, like in, in, as you know, in bigger cities, like it's much easier to, to sort of handle stuff like this if you're so inclined. Um, you know, it was actually, you know, my, my mom who's used to talking to me and, you know, and is a little tougher about these things. She's like, well, ask them about this hotel. And, you know, and I would say, well, you know, I would say, I would say things to, you know, like social workers and cops. Well, you know, where, where would I go to get some? Like, oh, I don't, you know, I don't know. We don't have that kind of problem around here. I say, well, you know, tell me about this hotel. And they're, oh, well, yeah, well, that's a bad place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So okay, um, go go to the bad place. <laughs> but it was, you know, like again, it was that sort of, you know, like the 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 conspiracy of silence that 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 overtakes a small town where, uh, you know, nil nisi bonum, as they say in Latin, nothing but the good, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, we're not gonna. And the thing is, you know, I I haven't lived in Sterling since I was eighteen. Uh, I'm in my mid forties now. So I'm not really, you know, like I could drop my folks names here and there and that opened a couple of doors, but like, I'm not, you're no longer off the town. Uh, <laughs> I have lived in foreign parts too long as Winterborn mm-hmm. says in, in Daisy Miller. Right. Like, so yeah, I mean that, that was, that was where, I, you know, that was my thought on this. That it was just, you know, it struck me right away as soon as I heard about it. That is just on its face compelling that Dixon, the, the hometown of Reagan, you know, Reagan, who's arguably most famous domestic policy was the war on drugs. And, you know, just a few blocks away from his boyhood home, the cops have stricken his colors and no longer interested in, in doing the war on drugs anymore in Dixon. You know, m- my sincere hope is that not only are they successful at this, that they, you know, they can turn this around, but, you know, may- maybe in the big cities we can start thinking about this stuff, too. You know, here in D.C., where which, by the way, D.C. now leads the country in the increase in opioid deaths. D.C. does? Yeah. Wow. Uh, like they have the biggest single 
year year over year. I mean, we'll, we'll, uh, we're waiting for the new data to come in. But here in D.C., they decriminalized pot a few years ago. But because it's D.C., pot arrests tripled in the year after they decriminalized it. You know, it's just uh, that's a rabbit hole we can go down another time. But like the thing is, it's really hard to get an argument going. I think you know this. It's hard to get an argument going for anybody who thinks that we should continue to prosecute the war on drugs, right? It's just, it's stupid, uh, and it's insulting, and, it, and it's failed uh, in any way you measure it. So to see sort of a rock-ribbed, conservative place like Dixon come to terms with that, that, was, that felt really compelling to me. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad, I'm glad it felt compelling to you, too. It, no, it definitely does. There were so many things. I, I thought of one of the quotes that really... St- stuck out to me i thought of it today when the president gave that address one of the quotes was we will not arrest our way out of this Mm. right is what what i think one of the police officers said to you right and it struck me that in a way that is what they're trying to do with immigration right now correct that that is that is the, the the overlap to that approach that was completely failed with the war on drugs to taking the same approach to immigration, at the, particularly right now at the southern border, it seems to me both salient and will probably go a, a tragically similar route if the president actually got what he wanted. No, I, I agree with you a thousand percent on that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just like it's just sort of a bad time to be doubling down on law and order, period. Right. I mean, like and this is this is the other sort of tragedy about the Trump administration. Up until he became the front runner, the Republican Party was willing to rethink its commitment to law and order. And the Democratic Party was as well, too. You had something like a bipartisan consensus emerging that we need to rethink. You know, the, 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 the truth is the war on drugs in particular, but the, the whole law and order project has been a conservative New Deal program since the, since the 70s, right? You know, the building, you know, it became like an infrastructure project for the right wing. You know, when I say right wing, I mean the Democrats as well as the Republicans. You know, Bill Clinton's three strikes and you're out and the super predators. They were up to their ass in that shit, too. When you declare war on anything like, you know, that's an infrastructure project, right? That like that, you know, you're committing to to, when when you're doing it in in law and order, when when you're doing it through the to law enforcement, you're committing not just to the cops, but to the to the courts and to the bailiffs and to the prisons. The, I mean, one of the difficulties we face right now is that even if you get out of the war on drugs, which you know we're slowly creeping our way away from, you're going to have to deal with the economic dislocation of that, right? Because some something's got to be done for the bailiffs and the judges and the social workers and you know the prison guards who are used to to guarding drug inmates. One of the other, that detail just blew me away. A seemingly small detail of residents of a town carrying naloxone nose spray Mm. because they can revive people potentially who have recently overdosed. Yeah, that 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 just that really stuck with me. I had a question for you too. The the safe passage program that you describe, which is somewhat similar in nature to what you and I spoke about the first time when we were talking about how how uh, narcotics were handled in Switzerland. Yes. Uh, when, when Switzerland switched over to, to giving addicts, letting them register, basically, and giving them methadone uh, if they agreed to both therapy and uh, social work, 
and uh, and also medical supervision. It's taken longer, obviously, in the United States, and this safe passage is something somewhat akin to that approach. No, but I think I think Switzerland. I'm sorry to interrupt, Daniel, but I, no, the no, reason Switzerland's I think the reason Switzerland is so important uh, in the U.S. context is that Switzerland is not a. I mean, Switzerland's a very conservative country, as you mm-hmm. know. Johann Hari wrote about the Swiss project a couple of years ago as sort of, you know, if, if, if the conservative and grumpy Swiss can do something like that, you know, the conservative and grumpy Yanks can do it too. I think that the critical difference is, and this is the piece that's coming out, it's actually going to hit the, the web in about 25 minutes. Mm-hmm. The difference is we don't have anything like a, so, you know, a, a social welfare safety net like Switzerland does. The difficulty that they have in Illinois right now and in in most parts of the country, is that even when they when they decide they want to toggle over to a more humane treatment, right, where they they're, they're willing to stop arresting, they're trying to arrest their way out of the problem. They don't have anything like the social infrastructure in place to get people help. So, and that's especially that's more true in small towns like Dixon than it is in big cities, right? Um, so. You know the the nearest rehab to Dixon is a, is a good hour and a half drive away. Wow! Right. So, um, and you know, and it's not clear that Medicaid will cover, you know, Medicaid the social, you know, the social welfare for the poor, or the healthcare for the poor. It's not clear that Medicaid will cover all expenses. And this isn't in the piece, but Illinois's Medicaid only pays for Suboxone and Vivitrol, but they don't pay for Methadone. So, I mean, there's, and there's only three legal drugs. There's only three drugs approved for, for drug assisted treatment to addiction. And so, you know, Illinois only covers two of them. And the, the other problem is that Illinois social, as progressive as Illinois has been, I mean, you know, it's, it's a fairly liberal state. Its social welfare system had sucked for years. Its Medicaid reimbursement rates were near the bottom. They, they they were routinely fighting with like Alabama and Mississippi for um, lowest reimbursement rates. Why why is that, Bill? The well, I mean, it, the peculiar politics of Illinois. I mean, it was, just, it was just sort of a you had the first of all the the Democratic Party for a long time was not really all that progressive. I mean, you're thinking about the Richard Daly machine. I mean, the, the Democrats, you know, for a long time were the party of reaction. And then even as they grew more liberal through the late 80s and, and 90s, the Republicans became more reactionary. And, you know, and, you know, and and there's just a ton of endemic corruption that has prevented, you know, so, you know, Illinois is dealing with a pension crisis right now for about two years. I think it was 2015, 2016, may have been 2014. Don't don't hold me to this exactly. Illinois didn't have a budget. It was one of two states in the union that didn't pass a budget because of uh, combat between, they had some Koch brothers clone called uh, Bruce Rauner, the Republican governor. Uh, he was fighting with the speaker of the Illinois House, a guy called Mike Madigan, who's been, he's a South Side Democrat who's been fixing things since Christ was a corporal, right? I mean, and Madigan's one of those people that, you know, was it Baudelaire? Was Baudelaire who said was described? No, it was Flaubert who said of some banker that he was so corrupt he would gladly pay for the privilege of selling himself. <laughs> um, wow. So, 
you know, so Illinois did, you know, Illinois, the social welfare system had already sucked. And then they didn't have, you know, for two years, they didn't have a budget, which meant that you didn't get, you, you didn't get paid unless you had a consent decree or a court order. So just as the opioids crisis was taking on terrible dimensions in Illinois, it's, it's awful dimensions in Illinois, the, the, the government was completely checked out. You know, so like one statistic I, I cite in the piece, the Trump administration has offered 16 million a year for the next two years, right? Which, you know, every little bit helps. But in 2015 alone, Illinois Medicaid spent $23 million just to treat the babies who were born addicted to opioids. So it's, you know, it's just a sinkhole. I'm just sorry. I'm just, just shaking. No. I didn't mean to interrupt. I'm just shaking my head over here. I, it just seems to me so evident, so incredibly self-evident that there is a real crisis, a, a real health crisis, Uh, And not only a real health crisis, but with that real health crisis, also a chance of really making a difference, both probably in criminal statistics, in in healthcare. And yet this is something that is completely buried under the avalanche of professional wrestling that is the daily Trump administration assault reality show where it is more important how those particular characters conduct their daily business or some ridiculous bullshit that they've just spouted, which we're all happy and excited to read when in our hometowns, like in your case, and straight under our noses, there is an actual crisis going on that would deserve all of that time, would deserve all of that money. Yeah, I I think that's a perfect word for it. And look, and I don't want to sound like I'm being even-handed here because I I would hate to risk that, but um, (laughs) one of the sort of unspoken difficulties with getting a national health care system in place in this country. And, I, you know, I don't think this gets talked about enough. As you know, in, in, in Europe, and especially in Northern Europe, um, whenever they've implemented a net, when, when they move to a national health system, one of the things they do is curtail lawsuits, medical malpractice lawsuits, mm-hmm. because, you know, because the, you know, because the new logic of a national health care system dictates that you can't be drawing out of it because you're affecting everybody else's health care. Right. Yep. So, so you've got to curb costs and a good way to do that is to, is to, is to, is to lock down medical mal- malpractice litigation. Now, mm-hmm. you know, obviously in Europe, like the, the, you know, they, they don't have the common law. So, you know, litigation is not, has never been as big a risk, but that, that is still an objective factor in national health, right? The minute you start talking about uh, some kind of government guarantee of health care, you're automatically talking about curbing costs, which means that you're, you're, you know, you're confronting the trial bar in this country. The objective fact is that the Democratic Party for most of the 19, since at least the 1980s, probably sooner, certainly in Illinois, this was the case, has been an adjunct of the trial bar. Like the, if you look, you know, you can look at any presidential candidate you like that the Democrats have put up. They've all taken their their filthy lucre from you know Raytheon and you know the, the, they've all taken their their money from the from the from the corporations and everything. But the biggest single percentage has been through the, through the trial bar, right? Like just consistently. The trial bar is just a huge is it's a huge constituency in the Democratic Party, or it has been. And there are there you know it's almost like if you look at the numbers, it's like 80, 20, 90, 10 donations of trial lawyers to, wow. to, to Democrats versus Republicans. 
So they've, you know, they've basically put every, all their chips in the Democratic Party. So again, you know, and we'll, I guess we'll get into this in a little bit, but I mean, one of the things that will be fascinating to watch as the Democrats sort of come into their own is in the House, especially assuming they, they can retake Congress in 2020, like we're going to find out how serious they are about national health. Because, you know, one of the tests of seriousness is going to be like whether or not they can confront the trial bar about health care costs. I'm sorry, I went way down a rabbit hole. You, you. No, no, that's a really interesting. But, what I was just thinking about is, do you happen to know if being less litigious in, the, in Northern Europe is tied to a worse outcome for, for patients? Well, I mean, it depends on how you want to stack the argument, right? Like, you know, in the case where you have a meatball surgeon who, can, you know, who really maims somebody. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, you're more likely to get screwed in Denmark, right? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, there's caps on, you know, Denmark, for instance, has caps on non-economic damages, right? You can't, I mean, the, the, the reason that, you know, the, the reason that you try a verdict to a verdict in the United States is not for economic damages, right? Because you, know, you and I can figure out roughly what your car is worth if I smash it up. Right. But how do I put a price tag on your pain and suffering? And the you know, and it you know it's one of the parad. I mean, one of the paradoxes, the the, the genius of the common law, in my view, right? And I, I recognize my sort of Anglo-Saxon pre prejudice here is that. <laughs> um, and and I'm, and by the way, I'm Celtic by background, but like you know, I've, I've come to love the common law, but is that the, the notion of the common law is that is that the law comes from the people, right? So it's up to us, you know, if you and I are on a jury, we are the community and we're setting the standards and we think this is, you know, we think this is the kind of deterrent we need or the kind of rewards we need to, you know, to, this is the behavior we want to see, this is the behavior we don't want to see, and this is, you know, we're, we're setting standards through the jury verdicts. <laughs> but because it's common law, that you know, those jury verdicts tend to become precedential. Um, so, you know, in the, in the case of Northern Europe, yeah, I mean, you know, if you, you know, if you lose a limb because, you know, your surgeon was drunk, um, you're, you're likely, you know, you're not, you know, I don't, you know, I, the, I don't think you're going to be fairly compensated for it in the same way that you would be in the United States. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, where, That's fair. yeah. You know, because the point of the, and even an outrageous jury verdict, right? I mean, or quote unquote outrageous, is the the jury is telling people in the community we don't tolerate this kind of shit here, right? And you know, so you know, you, you come back with a ninety million dollar verdict. What you're saying is we want this doctor out of business, right? Because the juries don't have power to order a doctor out of business, but you know, we can bankrupt him. Mm -hmm. So. You know, if 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 you have the misfortune to have a meatball surgeon in Denmark, you're not going to get a ninety million dollar verdict. Um, you're going to have a bunch of actuarials sit down and say, "Well, you know, this is what we think your left hand is worth to you. Thank you for coming." Right? The I'm now going to have to do extensive research <laughs> into the worth of a left hand in Norway. Ah, ah, right, but I mean the the but the you know the the sort of the the crass utilitarian calculus there is. Um, even though you're screwed because you lost your left hand, the rest of us are are better off for it, right? And the the fact was in I think it was in Sweden in 1988 or 89, the government announced that 
you could put a ruler over any child in Sweden and by any objective measure, like height, weight, teeth, disease profile, however you cared to measure like health outcomes for children. And you could not tell the class of any child's parents. So you could, you could line up all the Swedish children's, you know, and take a look at, at how they're doing. And you couldn't tell who came from poor families and you couldn't tell who came from rich families. Now shift that thought experiment to this benighted Republic, right? And like, I haven't even got to the end of the sentence and we're already laughing, right? I mean, like, so the, the question facing us in the, in the healthcare context, when, now that we are actually talking about Medicare for all or, you know, some form of national health, you know, th these are the decisions we're going to have to make, right? And, 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 the, and the question we're going to have to ask yourself is, you know, what are our goals here? I mean, do we, do we want to follow the Swedish model where you can't tell poor kids from rich kids by health outcomes? And the answer may be no, right? I mean, like, you know, there, there, there's, there seems to be a culture of risk in the United States, right? That, especially in the provinces, like, the, you know, people would, you know, the, you know, people would sort of, you know, rather run the risk of having, you know, their face blown off by their shotgun. Um, as long as they don't have to pay for health care. Yep. Yeah. As long, right. Like the, yep. like the, the, you know, there's sort of, you know, that sort of rugged individualism, like one of the things about it is, you know, the, it, like the implied worldview is, well, shit happens, right? Life is unfair, right? But like, it's worth the risk. Uh, anyway, I mean, we're, we're far afield now, but I mean, I, I sense that there's now consensus around national health, not, not just because of the realities confronting an aging population, but also in the, so many of the millennials they, first of all, they grew up after Checkpoint Charlie, right? So the yep. so socialism is no longer an insult in this republic. But the second thing is, so many of them also had experience abroad. My kid's sister, she's 10 years younger than me, so she's a millennial. She lived in Sardinia for a year, mm -hmm. right? Her, and her, her best ever friend lived in uh, Sweden for a year. My younger sister, her older sister lived in Brazil for a year and then Spain for a year. So I don't say that it's completely common, but it's common enough amongst you know middle class millennials that they will have spent time in social democracies. What an what an incredibly encouraging trend. Well, I don't you know I don't I mean I don't I mean I could be wrong about that. I mean this is this you know it may just be anecdotal, but I, I get the sense that um, and look that's changing too because you know like we've had economic collapse in this country and you know the number of passports is declining. But look, I mean, you look, look amongst your own kids. I mean, they're certainly not growing up. I mean, they, they don't think of socialism as a swear word the way it was when, you know, certainly when I was a lad. Right. Um, it's it, it's been de-McCarthyized. De yeah. Well said. That's a really good way to put it. <laughs> and this brings us back to the opioid crisis. You know, 115 people overdosing a day is roughly what laissez-faire probably looks like. So, you know, if, if, if we're going to take seriously... If we're gonna if you know, if we're gonna identify opioids as a crisis in any meaningful sense, right? Mm -hmm. Unless you want to try to arrest your way out of it, the demand for national health is staring you in the face. See, it's I think it's either arrest arrest your arrest your way out of it, or it's I think what the what the GOP thinks they're doing. It appears to me is that they're gonna rand their way out of it. That's a fascinating phrase. Yeah, what do you mean by that? Basically, it's do you know the it's just 
yeah they're just weaker they're 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 on drugs they're you know it's 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 that it's that class of people yeah exactly taken to its really horrifying conclusion while saying that that's not at all what's going on but but it's that idea of well listen we're just going to kind of leave you to your own devices here and if this is the life choice that you're making then we're very sorry but maybe perhaps you were not strong enough to be part of this american dream the cor- the, the corpses of freedom mhm and that to me is incredibly revolting yeah but i get the sense i mean don't you don't don't you get the sense that the the mood has changed on that like that that i mean for, first of all like the the gop has proved first unable and and clearly unwilling to repeal obamacare for instance mm-hmm. right and I'm not a fan of Obamacare for a lot of reasons, but the, the, the reason it's important is it established as a first principle that like the, in the United States, healthcare is a right. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, that, 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 that's what it did. And that's not going to, and that, that not only is it not going to unhappen, it, it clearly couldn't unhappen. Right. I mean, um, it's now part of the fabric of American life at some level, you know, the extent to which people are dissatisfied with it, are pushing them to more expansive government options and not less. Which is a really interesting trend. When we've talked about your piece with the detail that it deserves, which it absolutely does, then please do, not, please do not allow me to let you go without asking you what you think about AOC now that we're, now that oh, we're yeah, okay. on that particular trend. But yes, I, I completely agree with you. I think the American public is slowly but surely realizing the fact that there might be benefits to the idea of replacing things like law and order with taking care of the citizenry and perhaps approaching the problem. Yeah, I mean, let, let's just let's just approach the problem from several sides as opposed to let's just be as repressive as we possibly can and see whether everybody falls in line because we know they don't. I, I agree with you. I, I absolutely agree with you. And look, I mean, the, like Dixon is the case study in it, right? I mean, that, that is a... That it, like Sterling is a very deep blue democratic city and has been for a long time, but Dixon's not. I mean, D- Dixon is a red, you know, Republican area. And I mean, they voted for Trump in huge numbers. You know, they, they have abandoned, they have abandoned the law and order approach, you know, they're, they're, and they've done so sort of, sort of unselfconsciously. Like it just, you know, John Maynard Keynes line that the, some, sometimes the best revolutionaries are conservatives mm-hmm. because they they've been in the system and they understand where the where the failures are and, and what the choke points are right mm-hmm. um like, like i didn't like there, there i didn't send, there was not a bit of ambivalence amongst anybody i talked to so nobody actually doubted that what was going on was the wrong thing and we should definitely get back to that wonderful war on drugs that really really did them well correct yeah not not i mean and that you know, like it, not everyone molded into the piece, but I mean, I talked to judges and prosecutors and bailiffs, and um, look, I mean, and, 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 it, and it's you know, it was a it was a smaller version of what Zurich was facing, right? Like, it's just unpleasant to step over corpses on your way to get coffee, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's at, at some level, like at at some level, public health becomes a matter of public nuisance as well, right? Like the, like the, there wasn't going to be anybody left. Um, and there, there may arrest, not right because they had yeah. deceased. Yeah. Yeah. And like the, look, I mean, the, uh, the, one of the things I, I talk about in, in the piece that's going up uh, in a few minutes um, 
they tried to arrest their way out of it, right? So in 2015, they they um, involved a woman called Linda Hoggart, who and they they charged her with giving her boyfriend the uh, the fatal dose that killed him, right? And while she's waiting to go to trial, in the 18 months to go to trial, three of the state's witnesses against her all die in separate overdoses, right? So she ends up getting probation. Um, Part of me does not want Bill to spoil his piece, <laughs> even in this podcast, even just for our listeners, because I want you to read it and I don't want you to want him to tell you it before you've actually read it and we'll try and have bill back if he ever agrees to do this again of course we'll, we'll try and have bill back to talk about the piece in its entirety because there's i'm telling you there is so much stuff in this piece that you have to read and really let sink in and and then uh, we once once everybody has read it and has done their homework we can ah. go about the job we can go about the job of of really discussing it sort of it, it in its entirety but i i'm i'm loath to scoop all of the good bits um before people have had a chance to to really read it and, and dig into it and digest it that's very kind of me yeah. no i appreciate the kind words yeah but like i said hold on for for dr zero that is a an incredible part of this story and a really important one and a, a, a thing even the the story about what the company's behind Doctor Zero, how does he get? Yes. How how does he get there? How is that possible? How is that defensible? How in a in a country that is as litigious as the United States, how are these companies not litigated out of existence for the amount of terror that they inflict on places across this United States? The cost of the lawsuits already baked in. I mean, the, like, the, there's one company that I, that I just mentioned in passing in their 2016 SEC report. They they estimate they are already subject to 290 separate lawsuits, uh, just over opioids. See, but it's that, just you know, like surreal. it's this, it's speeding tickets at the Indianapolis 500. Look, I mean, the 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 company that I, I profiled last summer. So I'm not spoiling anything. So if you if you haven't read the piece, it's it's your own fucking fault, but the That's right. company that sells Vivitrol, mm -hmm. they're expected to make $21 billion on it by uh, by next year, by the end of next year, something like that. Wow. So, I mean, cut that in half and they're still doing fine. Didn't these, didn't one company just announce a, an opioid derivative that is, that is 50 times more potent than fentanyl? Oh shit. I hadn't heard that. Really? I don't know. Oh yeah, I have a research project for you now, my friend. Fentanyl. <laughs> the the makers of fentanyl, John Kapoor is the CEO of it's Insys Therapeutics is the company. Um, he's under indictment right now, and their CEO just pled pled guilty in Massachusetts um, to bribing people to to give out fentanyl. But when they were first marketing fentanyl, um, it, it this is uh, it's like. Um, they they were part of their marketing was that it's really potent but like it's an ultra secret formula like nobody else is going to be able to get it and within two years chinese pirates had already copied it so now there's street versions of it and it, it's because the formula is so fucking easy <laughs> um do do you know do you happen to have any statistics on the deaths of the chinese derivatives versus 
the actual product? Is that a are that those statistics a thing? I, I don't. I mean, I'm sure somebody has it in, somewhere in the bowels of the CDC. Mm-hmm. The difficulty is the and part of the difficulty is that opioid overdoses, as I understand, I mean, especially opioids, it's a cumulative problem, right? I mean, you can overdose just on one dose, but you can also, you know, for addicts, you know, it's a long-term degenerative process where, you know, one day you just sort of hit your limit and you're gone, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's not, it's not so much that you're escalating doses as like you would with cocaine. It's just, you know, your heart wears out. Um, so it can be hard to tell the difference, right? So, you know, somebody who's on heroin, um, the heroin, you know, there may well have been an overdose, you know, there may well have been a dose that the hotshot that got him, but it also could be just years of chronic opioid dependence. Um, and, you know, you, you, like you just, like your number came up. So it's <laughs> the, the, I'm sorry. I know you don't want me to spoil anything, but I mean, like <laughs> the the Doctor Zero part of the story, Part Three, which is coming out a week from tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that's in there is that when when they finally they finally bust this guy, he'd been he'd, he'd literally been you know running a cash on the barrel pill mill, where he was scheduling multiple uh, appointments on the 15 minutes. And giving opioids out to anybody who asked for it, and like, and the stories were that people were like dealing in his parking lot, right? They would they would grab a pill bottle and just dish it out. When they finally arrested him, the next day there were 200 people over at the public health clinic because like their supply had dried up. You know, they, they, it created its own public health crisis because he had gotten. I mean, all these people had come to him either they they were either hooked by his work where they were already hooked and they were coming to him and he was their regular supply. And, you know, and, you know, they were like little old ladies and, you know, in the steel town, there's all sorts of chronic injuries, especially amongst the old folks. Right. So you've got people that have been on this stuff for decades uh, and suddenly their doctor's gone and they're, they're basically treated like a criminal. Like you've got to go to the public health clinic and we're going to wean you off this. And like, wait a minute, this is my medicine. Right. So, um, they don't even know how many people like they know 200 people roughly showed up at their door. And then a couple other hundred other people showed up at like lo- local hospitals, but they have no idea how many people just simply moved on to heroin after that guy got busted. So it's, it's one of those weird gray areas. But that, that part of the story is truly, truly just devastating. No, thank you. It, it's rough stuff. I, and, you know, I, I may come back and revisit that if I can get somebody to, you know, it might make a really good magazine piece. Dr. Zero? Um, yeah. Yeah, that's that, which is funny because at the, at the time I said this is something where Esquire would be like, that's sexy. Huh. Dr. Zero, yeah. that, even the title is sexy, right? <laughs> yeah, it was, um, it's nasty business. Yeah. yeah. He finally reported to prison now. So oh. um, he... He, he he got about a year's stay and kept filing motions because he claimed he was a no help. And now he's in a prison hospital in Minnesota. Maybe we should do a documentary about him. Bill. I'd love that. Love that. I think that, yeah. would be, that would be a strong documentary. I agree. I'm do yeah, I mean, like the... I'm making a business yeah. deal now while we're doing this podcast, by the way. <laughs> <for> the... <laughs> if you 
can't do for your family who can you do for yeah that's very 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 true <laughs> no that's he's that he's really a great story so as you can tell you need to stay on this series of articles by by bill again it's on www.thewellnews.com you can find that link conveniently located on the at pooligans pod uh, or on my uh, Twitter or on my Twitter at the underscore twit or of course on Bill's Twitter where it will be prominently featured I'm sure for the entirety of its run at Bill Cap Hill who you should be following anyway if you're not you're doing Twitter wrong um, <laughs> you say the sweetest things yeah I, I try Bill I, I try my best because I always want you to come back so the, of course the, the honey is being amply applied, uh, <laughs> but because I still, even at, even realizing that it's already uh, nearing midnight where you are, I still can't let you go without finding no, out from you. <laughs> without finding, thank you, it's kind. Uh, without finding out from you, what do you think about AOC and about the progressive movement? Is that something that gives you that gives you hope? Are you critical of? Her perhaps not fully baked policy positions. What is your feeling about that wing of the Democratic Party? I think sometimes I so I toggle back and forth, right? That like I think in some ways the best thing that we old folks could do is just have a martini and a cigarette and then off ourselves and get out of the way for these kids. <laughs> Please don't off. If you're a listener of this podcast, please don't <laughs> off yourself. Okay, that was no, not an don't. invitation. No, no, no. I need you all. We love you. Okay, back to Jim. Back to Jim. Yeah, but but I mean, like in many ways, I feel like um, first of all, the baby boomers have to get out of the way. I mean, it's just sort of a moral imperative. But I, I think I wonder if the Gen Xers wouldn't be better served just to sit this one out too and let the kids get on with it. Um, I uh, am intrigued by Ocasio Cortez. I, my, like, my antenna go up whenever I see somebody who's, like, gathering a cult of personality around them. Like, it just makes me nervous. Yeah. Um, but I, I think my beef is with her fans and not her. She strikes me as someone who's fairly serious. And I know, I know she has said some things that, like, she said some things that, you know, appear to be flippant. But I don't, I don't get the impression that she's a demagogue. I mean, I, here's the other thing. I mean, she's she's a weak old congressman, congresswoman, right? Yeah. I mean, she, yeah. she she has been in power for, you know, I'm, I guess I'm willing to take a wait and see attitude. Well, I, what I've noticed though is, I, I, you know, I, I guess I, I have to give props. I mean, she has revived discussions of marginal tax rates, mm -hmm. right? Like, how many 28 year olds you know could do that? Something that something that got her applause from from and and was described as credible. There were we had an interesting discussion about this in our group where a certain member. I feel like I should be invited to this group. It sounds like you guys are really doing some. I work. listen. If you want to be overwhelmed on a daily basis by hundreds of texts, sometimes somebody's not there for like let's say for instance they do something strange at night like sleep, and huh. they'll they'll come back once they've gotten out of that uh, state of torpor and they find that 375 messages have been exchanged since they were last awake. And that was just during nighttime. And so this... Well, I, why else would you have ADHD then? Like, no, exactly. know, I'll, I'll take the risk, right? Exactly. So, so that's a thing. But it, sure, if you, if you want to try that, Bill, I'm, I'm more than happy. Yeah. More than happy. I, you, I interrupted. 
I interrupted you. Sorry, you're, you're saying about your. You've earned that stripe. Uh, you know, yeah. in that so in that group, there was there was one particular member who was really not feeling uh, Ocasio Cortez at all. Who was like, you know what? This is hurting the cause. She's saying things that are not true. Where is she going to go with those with that tax money? What is she even going to do with it? This plan doesn't re- is not really a plan. It's just a, a, a slogan and an idea without really being a plan. And so therefore. This sounds sort of silly. And then I think the Washington Post had a, um, I think Aaron wrote a piece, right? Uh, about mm-hmm. how he was not really, he was not really feeling like uh, Ocasio-Cortez was helping her own, her own case because she was defending herself in ways, herself in ways that were very similar to the way that Trump would defend himself. Like this feels morally right. I think um, my instinct is to reject out of hand any arguments that stem from the premise that you're giving ammunition to the other side. Mm-hmm. Right. I try to do, I, I try as, as you know, God help me yeah. f- flawed creature that I am. I, I try to evaluate ideas on their own merits. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. And I try to do veil of ignorance analysis. Right. You know, it may well be that she's a demagogue and a flake, but, you know, the reason to condemn her for being a demagogue and a flake is because being a demagogue and a flake is a bad thing. You know, the, the reason it's not a reason to condemn her for being a demagogue and a flake if if you're worried that, it you know, it's going to make the GOP more powerful. Right. Like, you know, either these things are good thing, you know, good ideas or they're bad. Right. Mm-hmm. And look, I mean, that puts me against the grain of like 90 percent of the Washington press corps. Right. Like, you know, Trump. Like Trump gives a fascist salute. Like, how will the Democrats capitalize? I mean, that's just a stupid way of thinking about things, right? Like, it's, just, it's you know, like Chuck Schumer whips his wang out. Like, how how will the Republicans capitalize? Like, that's mm-hmm. just like stop talking like that. That's just dumb. Um, but you know, so the 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 look. I mean, I. You know, like we, we have to commit to factuality, right? I mean, that that's one of like the new acts of like that. That's one of our post-Trump commitments that we have to make, right? That we, we can't be relativists anymore and we can't be postmodernists anymore as regards factuality, right? Like we, we, we just have to accept that there are objective truths and either she's going to commit to that eventually or she's not. She seems to be seriously seeking. Let me put it that way. Yeah, well, so here, here's genuinely, what here's right? what here's where I'd put it is that, you know, she seems to be wrong for the right reasons, mm-hmm. right? Sure. She's, she's seriously wrong as opposed to frivolously so far, I mean, but we'll see. I mean, you know, she, you know, we're giving hostages the fortune here, but, um, <laughs> the, and we talked a little bit about this last time, you know, I spoke about Obama, but I think this is, I think this is true of the, of the social Democrats that have emerged from Bernie Sanders now to Ocasio-Cortez the the mar- you know reviving the marginal tax on you know upper incomes it may be a good idea it may be a bad idea you know i'm i'm willing to be agnostic about that mm-hmm. but one of the things it's not is not revolutionary it's in fact very conservative right mm-hmm. because up until 1982 the marginal yep. you know the the top marginal tax rate was what like 80% or something or 67% mm-hmm. And in you know, and, and Eisenhower was ninety three percent, right? So what I've noticed about the the social democrats, and you know, and certainly about the you know the center left liberals of, of the Obama ilk, is that a great deal of their appeal is nostalgic, 
a great deal of their presentation is a nostalgia for that sort of lost America of, you know, the post-war boom, mm. right? Even when they, you know, Bernie Sanders doesn't seem to be able to get through a sentence without referencing Denmark or Norway. But even he's talking about sort of like it, it's it's a mythological Denmark or Norway. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. And I, and I don't say that I don't say that this undermines his argument. I, I, what I mean to say is that, like, conceptually, it's it seems to me much more of a, of a looking backwards rather than looking forward. Right. So I, I, I just sort of note that in passing that like, um, I mean, cause look, I mean, you know, if, if, if you want to think dialectically about, about such matters, I mean, the, the, the objective fact is that we're all serfs before the IRS, right? I have, you know, like we, it's really hard unless you're like an accountant, it's really, and even if you are an accountant, it's really hard to know moment to moment, whether you're in compliance with American tax law. Because it's absolutely Byzantine, right? Yep. If we want to think about this dialectically, then maybe the most revolutionary thing is to flatten the tax, simplify it, and just, you know, when communists like me are in charge, I'm going to take a lot of your, I'm going to take half, say, or a quarter. And then, you know, when, you know, you guys elect Rand Paul or somebody else, it'll be a nickel for every dollar you make, right? You know, and, I, and I'm not, I'm not arguing this. I'm, I'm just, what I'm, what I'm noting is that, you know, when, when you start talking about, social welfare in these terms, it's ultimately, it seems to me, it's a very conservative argument, right? That like, you know, because what, what you're, what you're doing is, first of all, you're hearkening back, you know, again, to that sort of new deal, you know, post new deal liberalism of the American Republic specifically, but you're also, you're also merely saying like, it, it, I mean, it's basically civic liberalism. It's a, it's a conservatism in the form of let's just mitigate the risk of American life. Right. That like you're saying, like, you know, we, we want you to be on. I mean, because, you know, among other things, when, when you start talking about social welfare, what you're doing is you're encouraging entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. And the reason so many of us work our bullshit jobs is because who wants who can get rid of their benefits? Right. I, I can't afford insurance on the open market. Right. Right. So Give I have me, to get it from a company. Right. Right. So, you know, but give me a guarantee that I'll get, you know, that my asthma is going to be covered and my ADHD is going to be covered and I'll be able to get my oldest boy treatment for his autism. You know, to minimize that risk for me. Take that risk from me. And I will roll the dice on myself, right? Like, I'll, I'll you know, I'll go freelance full time. Fuck it. Right? I'll bet on myself. Right? And, and, and I don't think I'm alone in that. Right? I, I think that, I think that, I think that's, I think that's, you know, one of the things that, that we can discover. But, but, but my point is, how much, you know, like when I talk like that, I sound very much like a Republican, don't I? Mm. Right? Like, you know, the pay on, you know, I mean, like I, I sound like Dale Carnegie for Christ's sake, right? I'm just going to roll up my sleeves. And... Right? Yep. And, and so, and the wonderful thing is that you may have just spoiled progressiveness for a huh. whatever millennial just listened to this podcast is like, wait huh. a fucking second right now. What did this man just explain to me? Fuck this. I'm going to be a Republican in this case because. Well, well I mean, you know, here's the other thing. I mean, like, you know, the dirty secret is as long as this Fakakta Republic commits to a two party system, we need Republicans. Right. Yeah. Yes. And and look, in many ways, I mean, like, the, it, you know, if, if you were 
I wouldn't say if you were leftist, but if you were liberal in your temper, the Republican Party seems to offer you a lot more opportunity right now. Because someday Trump's going to be gone, regardless of how it ends. I mean, he's, you know, the guy's 72. He's term limited, right? Yeah. There's going to come a point where he's going to be gone, right? He's completely smashed the party apparatus, right? And bankrupted the conservative ideology that has dominated the party for, since, you know, since at least the 80s, right? So amongst that smoldering wreckage, I mean, like, you know, something like a liberal pub Republican has a, a chance at a Phoenix-like revival, right? Uh, does he? I who is going to who is going to be his uh, his his base exactly? Well, I mean, it, first of all, it could be a her or oh, her. Sorry, no, but I mean, who? Like, let's say tomorrow, Nikki Haley. Or, well, not tomorrow, but at that at that magical moment where Trump is finally gone, Nikki Haley's like, "Hey, remember me? I was in the Trump administration, but I wasn't bad." I knew what I was doing. I got out in time. Uh, you all give me votes. Does does that does that Trump base that does that thirty percent of the population turn out for that person, or are they waiting for a the Trump two The Trump base is fascist curious, right? Correct. So, so no, I mean, I don't, I don't see them turning out for N Nikki Haley. But I mean, we canvassed this last time we talked. Um, you know, every Republican from now on is, you know, because of, of Trump, Trump's co lasting contribution to this republic is to is to deed us with these sort of fascist curious people. That doesn't mean you have to accept their support. Right. I mean, like, hmm. here, here's what I'll say. I mean, if I had told you in 1972 that the next great Republican president was going to be a divorced Hollywood B-movie actor, you would have lined up to take my money. Right. Yep. 100%. No, nobody had met Ronald Reagan yet. If I had told you in 2003 that the next great Democratic president was going to be a black dude from the south side of Chicago with the middle name of Hussein. I would have called you insane. You, you, you would have lined up to take my money. Yeah, true. Right? Um, you hadn't met Barack Obama yet. Um, so, you know, history has, a you know, Cleo is a is a temperamental muse, right? I mean, like she has her own rules for how history rolls rolls itself out. Um, what what I'm saying though is that like, you know, th there's clearly carnage and wreckage in the Republican Party right now, and and the old orthodoxies have been upended, you know, from within, right? So, you know, and and look, Mitt Romney as governor of Massachusetts created a health a public health care bill that became the model of Obamacare. Right? Mm -hmm. There is you know, there there is my, my, my point is that like, you know, there's a logjam of liberals in the Democratic Party. Right? Um, and you have this gerontocracy at the top of, you know, all these septuagenarians yeah. that are running the party. Um, so, you know, just and I, I don't mean to sound too cynical about it but like you know the old the old line about hitting them where they ain't if, if you're of a liberal temper i wouldn't say leftist if you're a leftist you, you probably have to stick with the democrats or, or outside the democrats but if you're of a liberal temper you you've got a much better chance of advancement in the republican party right now the way things stand probably not in the deep south but like you know maine or massachusetts or something like that mm -hmm. right like or california for that matter California. 
No. <laughs> well, no, no, but I, I mean, look, I mean, the, I mean, the way the way it has broken down in the, into these one-party states, right, where uh -huh. they're solid blue, and California's like this, Illinois is like this, New York's like this, Massachusetts is like this, right? Solid blue and you know, post-industrial wealthy states. Um, every couple of years, they return, they they turn to a Republican to sort of restore fiscal discipline. Mm. Well, we, we, right? I guess I guess California though just had some just had some luck with with Brown, right? Yeah, yeah. Jerry Brown's the exception to that. Yeah. But, uh, but 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 I mean, you you look at like Massachusetts electing you know Mitt Romney, mm -hmm. New Jersey electing Chris Christie, oh god, Illinois electing you know Bruce Rauner, even though he he was an outlier as well. I mean, you you take my I mean you know, like it's like it 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 would be I I would sooner bet on a Republican winning governor of California than I would bet a Republican becoming speaker of the California house. How's that? Well, yeah, that, that's right. It. But I mean, let's see, I don't know this, this last midterm election really, really oh, yeah. decimated. And, and still today, the, the, it, it seems likely now that the Republicans are going to go with Mr. Super Trumpy as uh, it, for the, for the California election to lead the, the Republicans in the California legislature. Who, Good luck with that. Nobody wants to hear from that dude. I, I'm, Good luck with that. See, I'm curious if you right now headed over to the Republican Party, aren't you, aren't you in danger of falling? Once this is over, there will be a a were you Trumpy purity test, right? For mm -hmm. for for a majority, so you you would have to sift all of that Trumpy stuff out, and whatever whatever drops out of the sieve then is the gold, whatever the gold is that le that's left over. Which indisputably there is gold on the Republican side, obviously, but that's a that, there's a lot of shit gonna be in that in, in that sieve, though, like a lot. Well, yeah, right. But uh, like, look, I mean, the, how do you replace the, all of that? Well, no, no. Well, here's the. Th I mean, here's the thing: the the weight of the electoral system is on a two party is on a two party system, yeah. right? So that means that like it's. You're, you're basically guaranteed, you know, like the Republicans aren't going away, right? Like they're not, like there's, they're not going to be absorbed into like some new Whig party or something, right? <laughs> that would be a great title. I wish they would do that <laughs> too. Right. No, but I mean, like, like, so, you know, like in, and in some ways, DC is a better, like better case study of what you're talking about, right? Because like the statehood greens and the democratic socialists actually do better than the Republicans do locally. Wow. You know, the, the Republicans are closer to a third party here in D.C. than they are like a second party. Um, but in most other states, even the like the deep blue states, that's just not true. Like there's a you know, there's some kind of rump of a Republican Party. Right. Mm -hmm. And yes, like, you know, there's a lot of layers of crap brought on by the current president and, you know, and frankly, by you know Republican decadence. Right. I mean, like, um they seem yeah, pretty eager, right? They're they're pretty. They were pretty Trump eager. Well, yeah, but uh, you know, like the, but you know, it, but, but part of that is just the polarization of the country, anyway, right? I mean, right. I mean the, the truth is, I mean, the the truth is, like, you know, there there are there's at least two Californias, right? There's coastal California, and then there's inland California. Until recently, right? yeah, yeah. Uh, um, until, but so, until November, there were two. Yeah. Now that's right, kind but of you know, now it's a one-party state. Yeah. yeah, right. But I mean, but 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 here's the thing. I mean, like, so 
you know, the, the question is, you know, will Orange County, for instance, you know, remain deep blue? You know, the, there are there are splits waiting to happen. I mean, the, there are splits Probably. waiting to happen to the Democratic Party right now, right? Sure. I mean, j- just sort of run net neutrality up the coast of California and see what happens. Like, mm-hmm. you're, you're going to see a split between, you know, Nor- NorCal and SoCal. It just and without leaving the coast, you know, and that's just that's just one example, right? I mean, the, the, there are there are myriad. I mean, look, the, the the truth is, the Democratic Party just won their huge election result. I mean, they they just won this historic vote because they got people in the suburbs who had been Republicans to vote for them. The difficulty is the people who are doing the heavy lifting and the people who feel they've sacrificed the most for the party are the far left. You know, coastal. I mean, the the people like Ocasio Cortez. Yep, and right, and, who, and people of color, right? And what well, well, right, she is, well, but I'm saying uh, I'm saying the black women who really do black in Alabama, for instance. Yeah, who gave who, you yeah. Doug Jones, right? Yeah. It, were it not for black women, like you yeah. know, Roy Moore is the next senator from the great state of Alabama. Yep. Right. Correct. Okay. Well, so what do you do now? Like, if you you know you're advising the Democratic Party. Um, you know, you, you've just swept to power because, you know, people in, in King of Prussia, Pennsylvania and Wheaton, Illinois, you know, who've been voting, who've been who've been voting for you know Reagan since every four years. Right. You know, they came out for you in a big way. Right. Yep. So what do you do about that? And and my my, my point is that, like, you know, if you were, you know, if, if you're thinking, I mean, hell. I mean, you don't have to be cynical. I mean, you you could be committed to this, if if you if 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 you were okay with, you know, gay people and brown people, yeah, like really okay. But you thought that you know, and you're okay roughly with some kind of social welfare, but you know, you want efficiency, right? You you, you know, you, you're not objecting to national health. You you just want it to run smoothly, you, and you want it to run as cheaply as possible. Right. You, you that could very well be a Republican position. I mean, oh. first of all, Trump's already sort of more or less staked that out. Right. I mean, he, he was he ran on a campaign not to cut Medicare and Medicaid. Right. And he, he ran on a campaign where he, he promised health care for all. Now, you know, he, he's obviously full of crap and everything else. But I mean, one of the things he's not hostile to is big government. Right. Well, it seems to depend. I see my my problem with that position, Bill, is that I think that first of all, I think whatever's going to happen in the future is whatever the millennials and especially women want to happen. That's what's going to happen. Yes, and then as well it should be right. Yeah, as well it should be. And then on that, if I anybody who right now joins the Republican Party, even if you have a chance of possible success, my fear as a particular as a politician being put in that position is what are the chances of what I just watched the Republicans do potentially mm. happening again? Like what, who, uh, where, where did everything that got stuck in the sieve go? And where are all of those supporters from the Trump rally now? And will I, if I really want to win, have to appeal to those people, whether I want to or not? I and, think that's a terrific I think that's a terrific point, and I and I should be clear. I, I think we are about to go through an entire generation mm-hmm. of mostly democratic rule, right? I mean, assuming we don't get vaporized by by this guy mm. in some kind of nuclear holocaust or something. Yeah. Um, 
but I, I think, you know, like certainly the millennials and, you know, and like certainly like our kids, mm -hmm. like it, it will be a life event for them the next time they vote for a Republican. Right. Yeah. I mean, it just it just will. It'll be sort of an existential moment for them. Like what what's happened that I'm voting for a Republican. <laughs> but, um, and, you know, and, I, and I think that's that's likely. But what I'm getting at is, you know, it's the old, you know, is it better to 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 reign in hell or serve in heaven? Right. And yeah. and what I'm getting at is, you know, yep. as long as there's a two party system, mm -hmm. you have a much better, you know, if you're of a, of a you know, liberal temper, you know, like you have a much better chance of amassing power and advancement mm -hmm. in, you know, in this you know, as a as a suburban Republican right now. than certainly as a big city Democrat. Right. Yeah. Like, you know, like the, the like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> excuse me i mean you know they're like the 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 california democratic party like you know like why would you even bother right i mean you, we're all like, good over here yep yeah i mean like they've got they've got more than they can they got more than they can consume locally right and they like and then you know and in my native state of illinois right now they have a veto-proof majority and they you know and they control right like yep um you know, so you're, and, you know, and, you know, by the way, there's a doctoral thesis to be written about, you know, how in the land of Lincoln, the, the party of Lincoln you know, doesn't exist anymore. Um, I'm, I'm sure those will be written, undoubtedly. Uh, but yeah, I mean, so, so anyway, that that's where we are at that, at this hour. Yeah, no, that is a, that, I think that was a full overview there of the, uh, so you, but just to get back to the uh, original yeah. topic briefly. So you're you're Ocasio Cortez uh, friendly at the moment in the sense that she seems to be somebody who is who is serious about about doing the politics, and hopefully she will turn out to be serious about learning about some of the stuff in the politics that maybe she hasn't yet had the the chance to fully explore in all of their ramification as most of us do not when we just joined the uh, the house as the house house's youngest member and hopefully she will as you said in the out at the outset survive this sudden cult of personality that's starting that can be sedu both seductive and destructive at the same time yeah no no i mean this is lincoln's old line that if you really want to test a man don't give him failure give him success right mm -hmm. um yep. um but i have to say look and i like i i I think her instincts are fairly sound. Mm -hmm. I mean, I just do. And I think, and the stuff where she's, you know, if she's been wrong, like I, I don't like it. And maybe this is my, you know, I, maybe I'm showing the moat in my eye. Um, I, I just, you know, I get the sense that I mean, it, it, I just get this. I mean, and, and look, I, I just get the sense that um, she you know, her instincts are sound. Mm -hmm. And I think, and, and, you know, when, uh, you know, obviously we'll see, but like, um, you know, cause you know, cause Washington is, does have a corrupting influence, right? Like, sure. like, like, like she now, she, she went from being a bartender where now she has people literally holding elevators for her. Right. Um, that's a lot. And, 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 you know, lots, like lots of people fall into that, right? It's just, you can just kind of set your watch. 
That's true. I, it's, but she's a, she's a wonderful case study, though, is she not? I mean, she. I think she I could be, where, where she could really be helpful is in showing that age group that they can get into politics, no matter what their their what they did before. Whether if whether, if they were a bartender, they can be in the freshman class of of the house, and they can represent a a a not insignificant district. They can even beat back a traditional Democrat. Not just a, a Trumpy Republican, but a traditional Democrat, and they can they can find their way in there. I'm I'm hoping that the cult of personality will not sort of overtake her before she has to chance the chance to really blossom. But I'm I'm like you said earlier. I'm I'm also wildly opposed to using this cudgel of. Well, you've joined. You're you're now a house member, and you're now meant to be completely serious and immediately informed as soon as you get here, or otherwise yeah. we have to discard you and not pay attention to anything that you say ever again anymore. While at the top of the while at the top of the administration, there's a president who has zero idea being president of the United States, not a freshman. Uh, not a freshman in the house the president of the united states who has no idea about any of his policy positions he doesn't know what a shutdown does he doesn't know how immigration works he has no clue about Correct. anything he's afraid of stairs right and yet his and yet his base is like nope well we like him we knew who he was when we met him and he's awesome so yeah i mean I, well, it, look i mean i think that i think that the the difficulty is, you know, I, I, again, I, I think we should try to avoid the two quo quo, right? I mean, just just because they like, you know, we do what we do, they do what they do, right? Yeah. Um, I, I think, but you know, look, keep it within her own party, right? Um, the the truth is, her party is dominated by like the leadership of her party are a bunch of seventy somethings, um, and the you know that doesn't it it doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing, but the like the their generational experiences of the of the boomers who are still in charge of the Democratic Party are Vietnam, right? Um, David Frum had this point a couple a couple of weeks ago. He was on Canadian television. He's talking about like imagine you know the Democrats running for president in 1920, who were all shaped as if you know they were all shaped by Gettysburg, and that that's the equivalent. <laughs> the, the, seriously, that, yeah. that that but that's what we're talking about, right? Like. Um, I mean, Nancy Pelosi was at JFK's inauguration as a little, you know, and by the way, just as a sidebar, like um, one of the tragic mistakes that like, and it's hilarious to watch people keep assuming, you know, because Nancy Pelosi is like unapologetically liberal and from San Francisco, um, her enemies continually write her off as like this hippy dippy. um, (laughs) Good luck with that. She is the daughter of Tommy dis fucking Alessandro, right? Like her dad was called Big Tommy and her brother was called Little Tommy, right? Mm-hmm. Like she'd cut you to know you. Um, you know, and she like she grew up at the knee of like some of Baltimore's baddest, like <laughs> like baddest people. Um so it's just so any but 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 that said, I mean, the, the, the truth is, like, the Democratic Party has a has a leadership problem right now because their leaders are all of a single generation, a single older generation. Um, and, you know, Ocasio-Cortez, you know, she's found her moment. Um, and the, the, the truth is, like, the, the, 
like if you sweep her under the rug, you, you know, you may, you, you may, you know, you may well be throwing away a pearl richer than your tribe. Yeah. Right. Like, um, you know, because, you know, because she, the, the, you know, she, she is in many ways the quintessential millennial, not, not just because, you know, that not just because she's browner than, 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 than typical baby boomers in leadership, but, you know, she's college educated, but was still tending bar. Right. Like mm-hmm. that, it, that is a common life experience among Very that call. Yeah. Right. Like, um, and she's talking openly about class issues in American politics for the first time. I mean, we, we, we haven't done this in this country in a long, long time. I talked openly about, um, about class. Um, so, you know, I, I, you know, I just, I wouldn't sleep on her. Like, you know, I think, it, I think it would be, I think it would be a strategic mistake for the Democrats to sort of, you know, make her be a, a, a quiet backbencher and, 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 and keep her place. I, I think, okay. um, I think she may have something to teach the older folks. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think we're finally at the point where we can see with this freshman class that came in the house, we can see a perhaps a renewed effort that was one of Obama's greatest shortcomings in the eight years of his presidency was that that bench did not really get built out. Agreed. And it was something that he didn't pay attention to, something that he, he just did not put an emphasis on, he was not interested in truly. And I think now we, we saw that that freshman class looked and felt like something that America that would actually represent uh, America in a certain sense, as it is experienced by by many people on a daily basis. And I think somebody like like Ocasio Cortez or or somebody like Beto, um, it, it it is it may not be the future of the Democratic Party, you know, on its own. It may not be the next Obama as they're trying to immediately uh, build it up as, right. but but it's 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 solid suggestions of a party that sees a future in in people that can come in young, learn, and that you know do not have to be from from either the Vietnam or the Gettysburg area in order to make uh, era in order to make a difference in the party and be that party's future. I agree with you, and I, I, I take it a step further. I mean, the, it's it, what, what, what's happening is the Democratic Party is has become. Uh, you know, and look, I, I I have spent most of my adult life hating Democrats. So like I, <laughs> I hope nobody confuses me, but they have become the party, the party of the future. They're the ones talking about, um, you know, better things to come, right? right. Um, the 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 other party has become the, the the party of decline and sort of, you know, the the line is American carnage, right? But like, you know, ask. You know, ask those Trump voters what they see for the you know for for America in fifteen years, and like it's like swarms of locusts come out of their mouths, right? Like they, yeah. they've abandoned the future. Um, so it's an amazing thing. Yeah, I, I don't know if I'm keeping you up, but like I, I don't. I, I think I. You mentioned Obama. Mm-hmm. I think I threatened to tell you last time my theory about why the the reason he. He, he had failures as a. I don't think he was a failure pre, failed president, but I think, in as much as he failed as a president, it's because of Chicago. Did I tell you that theory? 
I'm, I think you... I promised to tell you, but I don't think I actually gave it to you. Well, are you about to make good on that promise? Can I? Is that all right? No, of course I don't want it to, is. I don't want to overstay my welcome. With do it. Do it. I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you reminded me that you did not live up to your promise. Let's go. No, no, no. So, uh, so Obama, um, Obama was never – Obama hired – one of the things he did was he hired a bunch of people from the Daly administration, Richie Daly's administration, uh, to come work for him. So Rahm Emanuel was his chief of staff. Valerie Jarrett was there. I think Jackie Hurd was there. Um, and um, the the truth is, Obama was never really a Daly guy. Like he 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 made a bargain. He he'd always been a, a reformer, and he made a bargain late with with Daly and and got Daly to accept him. He's never really sort of in that inner circle. But the, the thing is, Obama was, um, I don't want to put this charity, but I mean, he was a deliberative guy, right? He he, he didn't. Um, Did you just use deliberative guy as a euphemism for something else you wanted to say? <laughs> no, no, no. But like, you know, he, 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 you know, he had sort of a law professor's approach that, mm-hmm. um, you know, he, he preferred to sort of chew on things and sort of vacillate. He didn't, you know, um, he, he, he also... In, in many respects, he he um, he had rough ideas, of, you know, about first principles, but he he just kind of assumed that every every principle could could be split, right? I mean, so you know, rather than, for instance, you know, the part of the reason his healthcare bill failed, you know, it wasn't as robust as it could be, is he started off by asking for compromise, right? Rather than saying, you know, I'm I'm going to give you national health or single payer, you know, talk me out of it. Right. He, he said, you know, he, 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 he came basically with his begging bowl in hand. So the Republicans said, tell me what you want. Um, but the other thing about him was, you know, in surrounding himself with all these daily people, uh, Rahm Emanuel, Valerie, Valerie, Valerie um, the thing that got missed is that, you know, when Richie Daly was mayor of Chicago for most of his term, uh, almost all of it, he, he, he served for something like 24 years in Chicago. Um, he never heard the word no from anybody. There were 50 aldermen on the city council and almost everything that Daly ever asked for went 48 to two, and often 49 to one. Right. So for, you know, for an entire generation of people that grew up around Richie Daly as his courtiers coming up to somebody saying, you know, the mayor would really like this. It was the same thing as saying the mayor, here's what you're going to do for the mayor. Right. Mm-hmm. They weren't used to hearing no. Well, I mean, that's fine, you know, in Chicago, as far as it goes. But, um, you know, if you're going to come to Washington, you can't just come up to some, you know, congressman from North Carolina, say, and say, you know, the, the president, the president would like, you know, the president would like you to, to vote on this gun bill. Right. Because and what happened was, you know, when people, you know, when people said no, you had a whole staff of people, of people who had no idea how to respond to that. Right. The, the, their answer was, "What do you mean, no? Like, like did, you, you perhaps you me? misunderstood like, my question." Yeah. Right, right. Mm-hmm. So, the the thing was, so you know, there was there was bound to be trouble no matter what in the Obama, you know, with, with those people around him. They they just, you know, they weren't used to hearing no. Um, but and but it was compounded by, you know, Obama's sort of aloof, sort of you know, college of cardinals approach to decision making right you know because you know Rahm Emanuel was is he I think he's a mediocre human being and vastly overrated but he's fine as a whip right like mm-hmm. the, the president you know the president wants this you're going to do it right 
do it. Um, yeah. Do it, you know, and we'll work something out. Um, but, you know, you, you can't have a guy like that if you're going to vacillate, right? The president's indecisive. Be the indecisive with him, right? Like, so my point is that, um, you know, he, it was a mismatch from, you know, from the early days. And I think, you know, I think that's why Obamacare wasn't as robust as it, as it should have been and certainly could have been. Um, and I think also that, you know, that was, that explains some of the drift of his, especially his first term mm-hmm. that, you know, it just, you know, like he, he just seemed, he seemed disconnected from what was happening. And it was, it was because he had a, he had a bunch of people that, that weren't used to actually having to do legislative work. And, and apparently they were also not uh, used to trying to get all the people behind them, pulling them up behind them or, or, or worrying so. about bringing anybody anybody in behind although i i i guess if you if you talk to administration people who spent a lot of time with obama the way that they feel about obama is i guess very very warm and positive he seems like a decent human being right yeah i mean and she does um, perhaps yeah. even more so michelle yeah 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 i mean i you know who can say? I mean, but look, and but part of it is too, um, that like the, if we're being honest, like the 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 Republican reaction to Obama was so hysterical, yeah. and so sort of outrageous. Um, and th- this is me, you know, atoning for sins of my past. I mean, I, I dismissed out of hand early suggestions that it was motivated by race, right? That like you know I, I just you know I, I I didn't have a lot of tolerance for my friends who would say no no this is this is racism coming back at you. Uh, well, um, you know, well no no I was wrong about that right yeah. I mean I you know I I I I stripped my sleeves and offered my scars like it was really arrogant of me to you know to assume that, that yeah yeah but um yeah you know obviously it wasn't all racism but like you know, clearly enough of it was. Um, and I think, you know, the, the impression I get was, um, I mean, look, I mean, Obama didn't think he was going to win in 2000. You know, he was running so he could run again. Right. Um, and he was sort of pleasantly surprised by his victory. He didn't expect Hillary Clinton to implode the way she did. Um, and I think, you know, so they, I, I'm not sure that they were ready on day one um, in the way that, you know, that, that other people might have been. And I think they, they certainly weren't prepared for like the hysterical uh, reaction that met them. They're right? both, both kinds of hysteria, though, no? I mean, they yeah. also, when they, when they came to Europe, I mean, I remember his, his welcome in Germany. I mean, they, 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 right. threw, they threw a Nobel Prize at him. They were, they were, completely completely in love from from the moment go yeah i mean absolutely enamored still are by the way let me ask you this and i'm sorry to usurp the right to ask a question but um what's your sense of the of the european attitude towards the united states now is like has has trump torched it permanently you know I i was just gonna talk to you about that actually i just having come back from from europe from two weeks in europe 
I think there there's a worry in in Europe that they are rudderless, that there is no more American leadership, and that somehow now there's going to be a there's there were always three choices, right? There's the American choice, the Russian choice, and the China choice. Not always, but that is how, where we are today. Those mm -hmm. are the three mm -hmm. world powers that can, and and Europeans to me seem mostly just completely dismayed. They seem dismayed. They are not convinced anymore that America can pull this back. They were encouraged. I mean, I, I imagine me discussing midterms with with friends in Switzerland. Right. How how do my friends in Switzerland? I know nothing about the Swiss midterms. <laughs> I have no idea whether they even exist. But they know what happened in the American midterms because they're so invested in this idea that that America, however you felt before it, whether you felt that it was too close to Israel, too hawkish, that whatever it did in the Middle East, all right. of that, all of that aside, they had that they they had that great hope that that America was was the leader of the free world and they feel Definitely that that has been diminished greatly over the last two years, and they are no longer convinced that America can actually pull that back. I think um, I think we're gonna I think we're gonna pay the price for Trumpism. I mean, whatever damage he does to the republic, I mean, we're gonna we're gonna want to know in fifteen years why the. You know, president of Burkina Faso, for instance, is just being uh -huh. a dick to us, right? Right. And I, I think I hear I hear your story, and it and it tells me that like you know my fear is is being realized that worldwide, you know, people are 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 like the, the they're they're deciding that like the United States can't really be trusted mm -hmm. anymore. And yeah, you, you know, I look at a guy like Jeremy Corbyn in Britain. <laughs> who you know is an unreconstituted stalinist right like mm -hmm. like it just it staggers me and you know and the th the thing is i'm you know i i was born after the vietnam war but like you know having lived in cambodia like i like i i understand why a ra person of a radical temperament would hate the united states for what the united states did in vietnam and cambodia and laos right i, mm -hmm. I mean i get that yeah someone like corbin like it reeks of bad faith, right? Like, and and the thing that worries me is that you know all this sort of Marxist-Leninist crap that he shovels is landing on undergraduates, right? Who had who otherwise had no frame of reference, right? But now, like, they can clearly see what he's talking about when he talks about the menace of American imperialism. Yeah. Right. I mean, because I mean, like it's it's hard to think of a it's hard to think of a more obnoxious caricature of American culture than Donald Trump. One hundred percent agreed. Right. I mean, like he like he is the pure distillation of the ugly mm -hmm. American. Right. Yes. Now, if anybody in Europe ever talked to me about why Americans and how Americans could be ugly, then this would exactly be the distillation. P probably right. even more. It's like a he, caricature of the distillation. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. Like he's like a Charlie Hebdo cartoon. Exactly. Of of like the of the of the Yankee. Exactly. Um, 
because look, I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm, tr- I'm, I work hard to be an internationalist mm-hmm. um, as much as I can be. And I think the reason that, you know, and, and, and comments like that bring me to the lip of despair because I mean, the, the tr- we, we have to come up with, we have to figure out a name for, for whatever, right? I mean, if, if Russia used to be the common term now, now what would you call them? Like the scum and turn, like the reaction. I mean, like, like they're, you know, like they're like the hive of, of worldwide villainy right now, right? I mean, the, like they're the, they're, they are the, like they are the imperial epicenter of scumbaggery. Russia, you mean? Right. Yeah, Moscow. Yep. I mean, like. Yep. No, they, uh, they, I mean, but what a successful campaign. I mean, it's truly, un, it's breathtaking. Staggering, right? Yeah. Well, no, no, and look, I mean, like they've they've managed to to break off the most important. I mean, not not the most important, but the most powerful country from the European Union. Uh-huh. But would right? we would we ever have thought that it was that easy to separate that connection with and and give that separation, like I just described, a certain feeling of permanence? I mean, did did we really think that two years of a I don't want to call him an inept clown, but two years of a malevolent uh, inept clown could actually do such damage to that connection that has been built up really since before the Second World War, but probably found its its greatest distillation after the after the uh, yeah since since the Second World War. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I no, I I agree with you. I mean, it's 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 staggering. Like the the like the. And the thing is, like you, you could you could get rid of him. To, he could resign tomorrow, and like, and we we still have like this mess yeah. is still there. Yeah. And the and the problem is like, how do I in good faith? Like, how would I reassure you as a European? Like, don't worry, this kind of thing won't happen again. That was right? like yeah, we discussed that the last time. I'm that yeah. is that is what I think now. Every four years, depending on how that GOP experiment over there on the other side works out. Every four years, there's going to have to be fretting all over the right. world, whether or not America is going to make another one of these mistakes, because that mistake was previously just not thought to be possible. Yeah. I mean, it was unthinkable. And, yeah. and meanwhile, you know, the, the, the most powerful European country is breaking out of the European Union in about six weeks. Also, uh, you know, the UK, also you subject mean? to, yeah, I mean, also subject to a you know, Russian Right. This information can be right, and we haven't even talked yet about what's going to happen when Merkel leaves. When Merkel leaves uh, Germany, what's going to happen in that election? Oh, fuck's sake! I even thought, oh Jesus! Yeah. That is going. To, that is going to be a whole different barrel of monkeys right over there. Yeah, and Putin hates her. Hates her with a passion, and unfortunately, her, her, um, her policy as far as as far as immigration is concerned is is now considered a complete failure uh germany has a, a, a very very strong uh right-wing party yeah that is that is right. garnering for more the, and more votes yeah. right for the first time since the second world war there's a party to the right of the christian democrats yep like day. just yeah what i mean whatever else you think about them yep. the mere the, their mere existence is such a calamity correct Right, because I mean, the the whole point of the post-war order was Conrad Adenauer, wasn't it? Who said yep. that, like, that their job was to make sure that there's never a party to the right of the Christian Democrats. Yep, and and here we are. Yeah, but, it's staggering. And I and I think that is what what is underappreciated, I think, in the United States. And I know that that Olivier Knox on his show 
because he deals with more with more foreign policy points has pointed that out uh, on occasion is that Americans don't understand what kind of ramifications a a a nationalist American president has on other places in the world, including Europe, including right now, very prominently South America, where we now have a, 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 a wonderful new guy in Brazil who everybody's super excited about. And I think Pompeo traveled to meet and congratulate. And it, it, it it's such a widespread phenomena so yeah once this once this particular american uh, trump experiment stops there's going to be a a lot of cleanup uh, that it that is going to have to happen and it will take a while before the trump ramifications are 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 purged from that system if that's even possible i guess we'll find out and 2019 sounded much better in the beginning when you described it than, huh. than it sounds to me. Right well, so, so look, I mean, he, so look, and I don't, I don't wish to to try to be optimistic about it because I no, like, please, I tend please, towards... please be, please be. Here's the thing: if if I mentioned Timothy Snyder earlier in his uh-huh. terrific book, The Road to Unfreedom, and I, I repeat that I urge you and your listeners to get your hands on it because it's just it's a fantastic. I mean, it's it's. I would call it sobering, except that as you read it, like the the compulsion to grab a cocktail is overwhelming. Mm. Um, but the here's where I here's where I take from it. I mean, the, if Snyder is right that so much of world chaos that we're seeing, especially in the European and American context, right, the the Brexit, the AfD, the Front National, mm-hmm. um, like the the and then Trump here in the United States. If it's true that um, that so much of that chaos is an outward expression of Russian domestic policy, mm-hmm. right? And and let me just pause here. That's not to say that I blame Putin exclusively for Trump, right? I mean, right. Putin merely seized on American weaknesses, correct? Right? I mean, like you know he you know it was I have Stone's line that nobody 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 forges a bankrupt currency. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, you know, if it's true, and I and I and it and Snyder's brief makes sense to me that that the that the chaos sown in Europe, first in Ukraine, then then wider Europe, and then eventually the United States, starting in 2012, is an expression of of Russian domestic policy. What we just saw in the last midterms was the rollback of that Russian aggression. Right. Mm -hmm. Because um, whatever the outcome of the Mueller investigation, um, there is now something like a civil society that has reemerged in the United States. Right. There's a civic space of people who are, you know, sorry to borrow the the, to use the cliche, but I mean, they're woke. Right. (laughs) Oh, Um, the W word. Well, no, but I, you know, yes, it's an obnoxious phrase, but I, yeah. you know, I think it, it, I think it captures it nicely. I mean, the 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 point is, um, you know, people, you know, like, like we've had our baggage overturned for us, okay, but we're coming out the other side of that, and it feels in many ways like civil society is even stronger than it had been, right? And there's, you know, there's new consensus emerging on all sorts of things that felt intractable, right? Or, or that didn't even appear to be a problem, right? Mm-hmm. So 
you know, two years ago, if I had told you that like Facebook was an evil company, you, you would have thought you would have dismissed me as a crank. Very good point. Right. Yep. I mean, you, you, we just, you just would have. Yeah. Um, now, you know, and Facebook may not be an evil company, but like the point is like, like you have to take that view seriously and serious people are thinking seriously about regulating things like Facebook. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, that, that, yeah. that think about, think about the, the, the journey that you had to travel to arrive at that point where that feels like consensus now. Mm-hmm. Right. So in as much as, you know, the, the, in as much as the chaos that we've been seeing in Europe and, and then eventually the United States, you know, eminent, you know, is sort of that tidal way, you know, is, is that sort of the tide coming out from, you know, from Vladimir Putin's Russian fascism? The tide's now broken and it's receding, right? That doesn't mean it's over. Like, I'm not saying it's inevitable, right? Because sometimes, again, the bad guys win. But, like, at a minimum, we understand we understand what the fault lines here are, right? And we, we understand what we have. Like, we, we have a rough idea of what our duty is in front of us. And I think that's a, I think that's a really, really excellent point, Bill. And, and... Uh, sort of building on that one, I just want to quickly, since we're going into 2019 and we're talking about the fault lines and the, and the, and the civil society is, that is emerging, one of the reasons why this podcast originally started was because I one of the one of the reasons was dismay, and the other one was my own admiration and and friends that I knew on Twitter's admiration for journalism. And, yes. and journalism, I think, in all of this, whether it's journalism about the White House, whether it's journalism about the about America, whether it's journalism international, whether it's finding out that Facebook may not be the friendly place that lets you happily scrapbook with your parents and send them just your children's pictures, but that they might also be doing some other things on the side, or whether it's finding out that somewhere in Illinois a doctor was able to give out prescriptions nilly-willy and and most likely killed a number of people and is now finally going to jail whether whatever story it is one of one of the great contributors to the re-civilization of this society has been outstanding journalism and mm. and that is something i think that we're going to continue it's of course not the only contributor but it has been a really major bright point uh, during a time when it was really needed and I think a lot of journalists really stepped it up and we're we we're really lucky today to be joined by one who did exactly that and I encourage you again to read the excellent story by Bill Myers at www.thewellnews.com Follow that story, please, even if the Trump shiny object is more fun and more immediate and and more clownish. This is a really important story that is going to continue to be important and that needs a real solution. And that solution cannot just be an imaginary wall. Um, Bill, thank you so, so much yeah, for no. being here tonight. It was so lovely. Yeah. Likewise. I'm really glad to be here. Thank you for having me. And let's do talk about that documentary on, on Dr. Zero. Oh yeah, I think that would be a lovely idea. So we're going to do that. We're going to definitely we're going to definitely keep talking about that. I think that would be a really interesting project to do. 
Um, so we'll talk about that. But for now, my dear friend, it's now 1 a.m. Uh, on the East Coast, I believe, if my, uh, if my computer here is not lying to me. Thank you so much for staying with us for so long and bringing us this Happy great story. And uh, I will invite you to, to, uh, to the abyss that is that chat room. And I'll see, I'll see for how long you can take it. Um, thank you, my friend. And I wish you a really, really good night for all our fellow pooligans. Follow at Bill Cap Hill. Like I said, if you're not, then you're doing Twitter wrong. Bill, thank you so much. And a good night to you, my friend. Au revoir, Daniel. Thank you. <laughs>